VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, December the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So another light dusting of snow overnight. A little bit slick in our parking lot, so maybe the same for where you're going to work or for an appointment or whatever you're at today. So watch it. And of course, now with the little light dusting again, at least for now, it looks like real winter landscape of white snow versus what we're generally going to get here in the city of St. John's in particular in the very near future. The old brown, slushy, icy muck up along every bit of the city. Anyway, let's go. All right, as you heard Brian Wador mentioned, <laughs> me and Brian are both big uh, on this particular story all three of the Hughes boys playing in an NHL game last night two of them playing for New Jersey Devils as they visited the Vancouver Canucks Jersey comes away with the win and all three of the boys hit the score sheet I mean it's unbelievable Jack Hughes goal and two assists his rookie defenseman brother Luke had a goal last night and their brother Quinn playing for Vancouver had a couple of assists so that's pretty cool stuff I want to say good morning congratulations to 14 year old Fallon McLaughlin from Mount Pearl at her age as a volleyball player she's been identified and chosen by the Canadian Deaf Sports Association to train with the women's deaf volleyball team. She's going out to Manitoba to participate in some training, and this is going to be in the month of January. Great opportunity for her. She plays volleyball at St. Peter's Junior High, so congratulations to her. Also plays with the Gale Force Volleyball Club. 14 years of age, might get a chance to play for her country. Absolutely brilliant. And this one here is for my big NFL fan, buddy and producer, David Williams. On this date in 1992, San Francisco 49ers wide receiver Jerry Rice catches NFL record 101st touchdown in a 27-3 win over the Miami Dolphins at Candlestick Park. Jerry Rice went down to finish his career with 197 touchdowns. He also leads the postseason touchdown mark with 23, following Rice on the regular season list. Randy Moss, who has 156, Terrell Owens, uh, Chris Carter, Harrison, Fitzgerald, Gates, some of the big names, of course. So there you go. That's one for you, David Williams. All right. Also, here we go in the Christmas season, one of the Christmas traditions. 59 years ago today in 1964, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the animated stop-motion Christmas special, was first broadcast on CBS television. Of course, it's a really endearing story. It's lovely, and it stands firm to, uh, to stands the test of time up until today. So it features Rudolph and a misfit elf named Hermie. They both run away from home. Hermie wants to be a dentist. They run away from home but head into trouble. So we see an awful lot of these really iconic characters that are part of it. So Rudolph's love interest, Claire East, uh, the abominable snowman, the loud, prosper, uh, boisterous prospector, who, of course, is named Yukon Cornelius, and Sam the snowman, all voiced by the wonderful Burl Ives that broadcast first in 1964 and endures to today. Okay, interesting story regarding sleep and children. I don't sleep very well, and I take melatonin as a sleep aid. And you know when you're a young parent and the kids aren't sleep and consequently robs you of a good night's sleep. So what's happening, and this is a survey coming from the United States, but Canadian pedi- pediatricians are also keeping an eye on this story. What it says, based on the survey, is that one in five school-aged children under the age of 14 are now taking melatonin. 
So it's a worrying trend, of course, what the parents are just doing anything possible. And knowing that melatonin is a natural phenomenon, it's a hormone your body makes in the penile gland, so they're turning to it. It's well been referred to as a very helpful sleep aid, but there are some side effects and risks uh, associated with children taking melatonin. So what they're saying is that, you know, it won't work right before bed. We secrete melatonin about two hours before bedtime, and some of the side effects that pediatricians are keeping their eye on include bad dreams and aggression two awful side effects associated with children and melatonin use i don't know if there's any real data that we can get, uh, wrap our minds around here in the country of canada but the canadian pediatricians who are seeing and reading these stories from the united states are keeping an eye on it so it's probably well worth your while to speak with your pediatrician and or your family doctor if you're lucky enough to have one about the potential for your children to take melatonin in an effort to get them some sleep you know even some of the dosages that are written on the bottle may not be as accurate as as uh, described, so be very careful when you talk about how you're going to use the melatonin to aid in your child's hope to get a good night's sleep. All right, so this story here, I don't know how much attention it's getting, but it should be the number one story in the country. And it's not about pressing the panic button or setting off the red flags and alarms, but this is about math reading scores. As faithful listeners to the program, you hear me talking about education all the time. You hear me talking about the concept of learning loss throughout the pandemic and the fact that we really haven't done a whole lot about it in this province to adjust curriculum to capture the children, to ensure they've got what they need to move on to the next grade and possibly into post-secondary. So this, uh, this particular analysis was released yesterday. It's called the uh, Bleak Appraisal of the Program for International Student Assessment, looking at the academic progress of 15-year-old students in dozens of countries during the pandemic. Okay. Average international math scores fell by an equivalent of 15 points compared to 2018 scores, while reading scores fell by 10 points. In Canada, overall math scores declined 15 points between 2018 and 2022. So that defines a drop of 20 points as losing a full year of learning. A full year of learning. That's the learning loss we're experiencing here in this country. So let's get into some of the, uh, the different ones. Reading scores Canadian students dropped by 13 points, science by 3. Now, we are still in the top 10 in English-speaking countries, but we can't rest on our laurels because the trend downwards has been happening since 2003. So I don't know why we don't have this really at the very top of the agenda. When we talk about every other economic or societal ill, a lot of it is absolutely directly associated with the calendar of education. Our successes in long-term viability and prosperity and health is directly related to education. Let's get into it a little further. Okay, in this province, this is not great. The provinces with the largest drop in math scores since 2018 were Newfoundland and Labrador with 29, Nova Scotia 24, New Brunswick 23, Manitoba 22, Alberta score dropped by only 7, and BC's by 8. So one of the professors that's quoted here in this uh, story saying that, first of all, we're not spending enough time on math in schools. Second of all, kids are just not getting good instruction in a lot of cases. They're not getting explicit instruction. They're not getting enough practice. And that's what really needs to change. Now, reading can be addressed, you know, at home and in your spare time. Some children absolutely have a love of reading. But when we talk about science and math and the jobs of the future in the STEM world, science, technology, math, mathematics, engineering, we're falling behind. 
you know, we do indeed recognize a lot of the issues that are facing this particular province and right across the country, whether it be inside your community or the big fiscal picture or the economic issues, and we're just not doing great. In other countries in the world, they're doing much differently when we talk about the global competitive marketplace for jobs after your either high school and or your post-secondary education. These are not encouraging numbers whatsoever. We're leading the league in the drop of scores since 2018. Now, they're also warning that you can't lay it all on the pandemic. And that's fair enough, because if you look at the trend numbers, there's graphs out there if you care to have a Google today of this particular story. The graphs are really quite clear. And the decline in the drop in scores since 2003 is pretty steep. So this is a story that, you know, when I went to find it this morning, because I knew it was being released yesterday, it was way down the roll on most every mainstream media me uh, website I could find this morning. But it may indeed or just my personal opinion, should be the very top of every news outlet's storylines today. I mean, every other issue that's being covered, every other news-breaking story that's being uh, discussed today, a lot of it stems from what we're experiencing in the world of education in the K-12 system. So those are pretty big numbers. Also, you know, when it comes to things like reliance on food banks, I'm not going to blame at all on education where some people find themselves in the life predicament where they have to rely on food banks. So the cost of living issues, even for people who are working full-time jobs, is really crushing. They're talking about folks under the age of 55 who are unable to get to a food bank, whether it be with mobility issues or disability issues or you just had a surgery or the food bank is nowhere close to you. There was a program that was funded up until the end of March that saw delivery available. That's gone with the wayside. So it's just one of those, you know, related to like the seniors advocate and her most recent report regarding poverty. And we're expecting another poverty report uh, regarding young adults and adults. So these fundamental things are things that when you talk about the priority for government spending, you know, ensuring people have access to food, whether it be, we can cover that from a variety of angles, but that story yesterday really captured my attention. We had Jennifer Collins on, who was part of the uh, wellness group that was doing some of these deliveries on behalf of the food bank. So if you want to take that on, we can do it. Also, when we talk about the caliber of education, and if I had my druthers, there'd be no such thing as quitting school before the age of 16. It would give you every single uh, leg up and piece of assistance and tutelage that you need to get through at least high school. Then we talk about the drop in life expectancy. Like, what's going on here? According to Stats Canada, average life expectancy across uh, Canada dropped every year from 82.29 in 2019 to 81.34 in 2022. This province, average life expectancy dropped from 80. .09 in 2019 to 78.76 in 2022. Now, again, not all about the pandemic and COVID. If you back it out, Newfoundland and Labrador is still under the national average. We do indeed have a real prevalence of chronic issues regarding heart disease, stroke, cancer. And of course, when you listen to Dr. Pat Parfrey, a lot of it directly linked to our sedentary lifestyle and our diet, what have you, social determinants of health. So a couple of stories, not to you know, kind of shock the system early on in the morning, but there you go, issues we gotta talk about. And we had Kim Kelly on yesterday to talk about an upcoming vigil for families who have experienced uh, death by suicide in their family. And then I see this story this morning, and I'm just, you know, I hate to be talking about these issues as early as 9, 11, and 20 seconds in the morning, but, and I'm not going to name the website, but federal officials have been asked to do something about this bloody website that is basically uh, a sole 
avenue for people to have promoted suicide. I mean, it's just shocking what goes on. The stories are pretty interesting when you talk about the fact that families, upon investigating the issues regarding their loved one taking their own life, death by suicide, having found that they're visiting this website. So we will talk about the uh, freedom of expression and what have you, but in other countries, they've actually banned access to this particular website, and in other places have restrictions. Australia, Germany, and Italy. In Britain, they've banned internet access to this particular website. So, like... You know, we want to ensure that people have the right to express themselves, of course. But this has been proven to be a pretty dangerous spot and blamed for hundreds, if not thousands, of deaths. But there's a suicide promotion website out there. Maybe just maybe federal officials can uh, ask or answer this question. Why are we not talking about this? Why are we not doing something about it? And on that front, I do think, and I've mentioned this in the past, it is time to have a conversation with your member of parliament around how the medical assistance in dying is being used. When you have someone who the prognosis is dire and intolerable pain, yes, the conversation with your doctor for the potential for made is reasonable. But the way it's being discussed in this country and offered to veterans who are struggling, or where we talk about people who have just the need for a little bit more home support, can't get it, consequently, this is the next offering. When we talk about the expansion of made services when you're only ill is, mental, uh, is a mental illness. So in... in between the suicide promotion website and the way that the country is moving with the medical assistance in dying, I think we're on the wrong track, if you ask me, of my personal opinion, which maybe some of you care, maybe some of you don't. Okay. Again, we've been talking about the fact that, you know, there's lots of conversation regarding our onshore wind, and we can have it out again today on that issue. But the consultations that have been happening around the province regarding offshore wind have been really quite strange. You know, uh, basically, people who are sitting in, we're hoping to speak with Katie Power. She's the energy industry liaison for Fish, Food, and Allied Workers Unifor, so the FFAW. They're talking about what the impact of offshore wind will be on the fishery. So the consultations that have been ongoing are basically being the, the committee members just introducing themselves, talking about the difference between onshore and offshore wind, as if anyone needs a real technical explainer on that front. But what we're not hearing in the consultations is exactly what's being proposed. Now, there's no formal application in this province at this moment of time for an offshore wind farm, but we do know, we've been told by Hydro and the minister responsible, that there are people that are kicking the tires for offshore wind uh, proposals. So when we don't even know what they're talking about, where the size, the scope, the scale, the market, the public investment, or what have you, we're really just kind of talking about things from not 100,000 feet above sea level, but a million feet above sea level. But coming today, apparently, between Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson and other officials, there's going to be some sort of announcement regarding offshore wind. They have been working on the uh, regulatory regime, and I would imagine some royalty regime has been part of that conversation, but I'm curious and keen to hear what the announcement includes today. But if you've sat in on one of those consultations, there's some of them have been done virtually via Zoom, some in person, and hopefully Katie Power has time to join us this morning because she'll be able to elaborate much better than I because she's actually participated in some of those particular issues. All right, a couple of quick ones before we get to you. Conversation yesterday, one of the callers talking about, you know, whether it be folks who are living in a tent behind the colonial building or others who are reliant on income support programs or social assistance, the concept of just go to work. I get it. Without question, there are some people out there who are not currently employed that ha are seriously unwell whether it be physically 
or mentally. So we've got to include that when we talk about the whole concept of don't be so lazy, go to work. That said, and I've been accused via email overnight that, you know, I'm just out there to try to give people everything they want and everything they demand or ask for for free, which is absolute nonsense because I don't talk like that. In fact, one of the best programs that the province has introduced is the Employment Stabilization Program. And everyone who's on income support, if able-bodied, everyone receiving any social assistance, if able-bodied, should be absolutely enrolled in this particular program called the Employment Stabilization Program. Basically, it was introduced at the beginning of the year. There was 170 participants, and now just by the end of this year, at least 40 no longer require social assistance. They're back in the workforce. This is one of the very best government programs that the province has. So what they have is a job start allowance. It went from $125 to $250. Whether you need to be uh, buy hard uh, steel toe boots or some clothes that are re uh, required for your new job. And then there's financial incentives coming from the government. A government payment of $250. $50 after six months of steady employment, 500 bucks after a year, a thousand bucks after two years. Pittance of money, and it's working. So while people are saying you should be going to work, and I agree in general terms, let's make sure that this program, whether it be through your caseworker or whatever the case may be, people should be encouraged strongly encouraged to sign up and participate in the employment stabilization program it's good for everybody and i would suggest excellent for the individuals especially the 40 who are no longer requiring social assistance from the government and as you heard brian Medor say in the news there is a uh, announcement coming from the bank of canada today regarding their benchmark interest rates currently stands at five percent when they talk about the targets regarding inflation and we're told, even though I'm not feeling any decreased pressure necessarily, if inflation is at 3.1%, I don't imagine there's any rate hikes coming today, but maybe it's just some easing might be helpful for Canadians, especially those of us who are about to renegotiate our mortgage. Okay, a couple of very quick ones here. So throughout the week of December 4th to the 8th, there will be silent vigils taking place at Memorial University from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. And of course, on this date, on December the 6th of 1989 at Montreal's École Polytechnique, a gunman killed 14 women simply because they were women. So that's happening at Memorial University if you'd like to take part in that silent vigil from 11 to 2 uh, throughout this week. Okay. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Had a couple more I wanted to get to. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. The topic, up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Just before we get to uh, our first caller, a question from Mark on Twitter this morning uh, regarding the math scores and the fact that Canadians are experiencing extremely low and steep drop, drop in math scores and in science scores and in reading scores. He said, how do we compare to Asian countries? Excellent question. So 12% of Canadian students were high math achievers, pardon me, scoring at level 5 or 6. That's fewer than some of the top Asian countries and economies. In Singapore, 41% of students performed at the top level. In Hong Kong, 27%. Japan and Korea, 23%. So 12 compared to those very high achievers in other Asian countries. And, you know, you can say, well, I mean, we just approach things different. There's different cultural issues at play. The fact of the matter is when people are looking for jobs in the growing sector, of the economy, technology and innovation and engineering and science. If we are having a global competitive race for these jobs, then those numbers absolutely matter, don't they? Okay, let's begin this morning on line number one. Good morning, Imelda. You're on the air. Uh, yes, this is Imelda. Uh, I'm calling in about the 
Ken, uh, Ken Dix had uh, it's supposed to call in this morning too about the La Senta um, eye injection drug that's been uh, dose split. Yeah, I'm familiar with the story. We've had uh, conversations with Mr. Dixon. Hopefully, we'll have another one with him. He's a pharmacist out in central Newfoundland. So what we're talking about is a drug used to treat age-related macular degeneration. Those are two. There's Ilea and Lucentis. And yes. you, took, you took which one? I, well, I t- actually took... I, the, when I first started, it was about 10 years ago, It uh, I took the first one. Uh, I'm trying to find it here now. Uh, uh, Right now, uh, Ilea, I'm pretty sure I took that for a little while until my insurance c- cut in, and then I've been taking the Centas ever since. And uh, I ended up with a really bad eye infection, and it's due to the dose splitting. And they had told me at the time that I, when I was going into the, the OR that if they couldn't get the infection under control that I would they I they would have to take my eye out. So it was a pretty terrifying thing that happened and my, like my eye seems okay now and uh they uh, uh I'm not doing a very good job in this. It's okay, let me help you out a bit, Melda, no problem. So the story here, and this has been happening for years, patients were unknowingly taking a split dose of either Ilea or Lucentis. And so what's happening here is that there was a pharmacy in Ontario called Advanced Care Specialty, and they were splitting doses. And this province knew that we were also offering these drugs to residents, knowing that there were split doses, which heightens the risk of infection. So a contamination and or sub- subsequent infection. What, furthermore to this, there was documents that were dated between June of 2015, August 2016, under the Access to Privacy, Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act, they were obviously heavily redacted, but clearly people were in the know that those doses were being split. Under Section 8 of Canada's Food and Drugs Act, it says clearly, no person shall sell any drug that was A, manufactured, prepared, preserved, packaged, or stored under unsanitary conditions, or B, is adulterated, which means dose splitting. It's been against the law, and yet nothing, no one and nothing has been held to account for this. And you ended up with a bad eye infection. Oh, oh yes, it was. It was bad. It was bad, and it was terrifying. My sister and I were both were, were like terrified at the time. And I still often think about it. You know, uh, could my eyes be in better shape if if I would have would have been getting the proper treatment? It's a terrible circumstance. So, what's the reality for you today? How are your eyes now? Right now, they're they're. Uh, I have the one 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 good eye. The eye that had the infection in it. That eye is good. My other eye is not the greatest, but but no, it's good and. Uh, but I just want, I just want it out there, get it out there, to see if there's other people that had the same problem, and they can call in or at least realize what they're reading. Because I didn't know anything about this until my, a friend of mine shared it on Facebook, and I was reading it, and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh my God, this is exactly what happened to me last summer." And and I was right now suspicious then, at the time that it was it didn't sound right to me that I could be the only one having getting an eye infection from this medication. 
one in, well, it was one out of 5,000, and then it was one out of the 3,000, and from an outside source, well, where would I get an infection from an outside source is what I would like to know. And But but in any event, I would like to, I would like other people to call in or get a hold of Ken Dix and let him know if they experienced the same infection. Well, they're more than welcome to call this program, and hopefully Mr. Dix has some time today or tomorrow or whatever day to come on and talk about what he knows because he has sent me copious amounts of information about this particular issue, and we're happy to have him on because as a pharmacist, he'd know better than I. But, Imelda, it's shocking and terrible that it happened to you and a bad eye infection because you were taking a drug that you had no idea that had been tampered with. And just, you know, fill in some blanks for the folks listening. So the drugs are sold in a vial, and it's meant for one dose. And there's more in the vial than is required for the injection, but they say that the overfilling is actually part of the packaging. So what they're doing is they're taking whatever is in excess of a single dose from the vial, and they're splitting it into three, four, or five doses, and consequently, there's been, the drug has been compromised. You know, it's contaminated and leads to these infections. It's, yeah. you know, the companies that manufacture Ilea and Lucentis are Bayer and Novartis, respectively. You know, when there was been, when the doses have been tampered with, and the allegation is uh, associated with advanced care, especially pharmacy in Ontario, which is no longer in, a, in, uh, in action. So should there be quality control from Bayer and Novartis to make sure that the drugs they manufacture and distribute are not tampered with so that people like Imelda don't have an eye infection? It is a costly drug. It costs somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000 per injection. The sales of those drugs for those two companies are in the hundreds of millions of dollars per year in Canada. And yet, you know, whether or not you had any insurance coverage, the fact of the matter is we've compromised people's health and their eyesight because of the fact that these vials have been tampered with and the dose splitting, as you described. Amel, it's a shock that it happened to you, and I'm really sorry to hear it. Would you like to say anything else this morning? Uh, well, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to uh, let CBC know. Uh, no, uh, CBC interview took my t- four hours of my time to interview me, and they never did air the air my story well we're airing it here this morning so it's uh, i'm airing i'm airing it here now but i think C- cbc should step up and do what they they promised to do fair enough amelda i appreciate making time for the show hope you're okay okay then. all right then thank Take you care. very much you're welcome bye bye yeah so ken dix i don't know if he's listening this morning but he has been sending along a fair bit of info this is a big story This is absolutely a big story worthy of really widespread media coverage. So Mr. Dix is a pharmacist. He was operating or practicing in Central for us somewhere in the neighborhood of three decades. He was part of a task force in the early 2000s, I can't remember the date off the top of my head, talking about Health Canada's policy regarding compounding drug products in the country. So the alerts were first found in about 2015, and yet... Whether we talk about the profitability of Big Pharma, the people turning blind eye to this particular issue is absolutely ridiculous. Amelda developed a terrible eye infection because of the fact that the drug that she was prescribed had been tampered with. And it actually is a contravention of the Criminal Code of Canada. So I just don't understand why there has been more conversation about this story. And I guarantee you, Amelda's not alone. So if you want to add more fuel to this hot fire about the fact that you were taking one of these injectable drugs to treat your ill, your Ill or your ailment, we can talk about it. So if anyone out there has been prescribed Ilea or Lucentis, and of course you have age-related macular degeneration, which 
somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million Canadians suffer from that condition, and the result of it can be irreversible vision loss. If you want to fill in some of those blanks, or you want to pick a topic of your choosing, you can do it right after this break. Don't go away. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to the program. Someone sent me an email asking if I had any information about the boat lighting out in Port of Grave. And in fact, we do. So apparently this evening they're going to light their famous crab pot Christmas tree that will be lit up. And I can't remember exactly how many crab pots are going to be part of it, but that happens tonight. And when we talk about the boat lighting itself, it first happened back sometime in the 90s when a fellow named Eric Lear hung lights on his boat. Eventually became a uh, widespread community event in 1998. And on Friday evening they will indeed have the annual Christmas boat lighting. It's really quite spectacular. There were stories back during the pandemic when, of course, indoor festivities were on hold or had been paused and apparently the drive into Port of Grey from Bay Robertsville takes about 15 minutes traffic was backed up and it took about an hour and a half to make that particular trek into Port of Grey t- to a view the fishing boats that were all lit up so that's actually happening on Friday night but the crab pot tree uh, that lighting takes place tonight alright if you're in the St. Charles metro region the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 709-273-5211 elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626. So we mentioned the fact that there's some sort of announcement coming tonight, or today, pardon me, regarding offshore wind. We have no earthly idea what the details will be. I assume it'll be based on regulatory issues. Then possibly we'll get the follow-up with the province about just how many proposals or proponents are in the queue that have been talking about the possibility for offshore wind. We have no idea where the market would be for that wind. And the same conversation, I think, is being extended to some of the onshore wind proposals. You know, one gentleman sent me a a Twitter thread regarding why aren't we talking about using that wind power for our own generation here in the province? Because there has been reports brought forward by Hatch, is a, a consulting company that's been working with Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, to talk about the fact that we will need additional power to keep up with demand in the future. We hope that that's more accurate than the so-called demand forecast that w- was part of the justification for Muskrat Falls. But they are talking about that. I guess the answer to Aaron's question about why aren't we talking about using that wind for our own domestic use? Well, the fact is we're not the proponent here. You know, they've got a business model. Whether or not it's going to work, I have no earthly idea. And, of course, we're not their customer. At some point in the future, will the province and parts of the country in the northeast uh, United States seaboard be using green hydrogen? Maybe. Off the coast of New Jersey, they actually canceled a big project that was talking about the same thing. The justification for that cancellation, I don't know. Whether or not they could raise the capital required, because we're talking billions of dollars to develop the wind turbines and the electrolysis plant, the hydrogen plant and, of course, the ammonia facility. So there you go. I'm also struggling to try to wrap my mind around the response from World Energy GH2 regarding a story that was published in Reuters about the possibility for one-year delay. The company's quite clear, and fair enough. I don't know if they're, you know, gun-shy here, that there may indeed be a delay, whether it be with pending environmental approval here in this province and or infrastructure be built on the other side of the Atlantic and in Germany for the so-called off-taker. But they're pretty quick to send emails to say there is no delay. But 
that doesn't necessarily jibe with some of the information we've been working with since there was a non-binding memorandum of understanding signed just last year. So they were talking about shipping green hydrogen to Germany starting in 2025. Now, as the story says, and direct quotes from the managing director of World Energy GH2, a man named Sean Leet, they're saying because of the issues regarding infrastructure in Germany that they're not going to be actually sell, uh, shipping it in 2025. They're talking about 2027. He's talking about the fact that they required new technology to ship the product to further process and transport the hydrogen by pipeline to the last destination. So World Energy GH2, which was talking about shipping in 25, now talking about not even starting production in late 26 and consequently shipping the first batch of the green hydrogen to Germany in 2027. So if anyone, including the lady who's been sending uh, the uh, statements to the show, would have wanted to help us square that circle, because I don't think it means the death knell to the project, because on the other side, the end user, if they don't have the infrastructure in place and the technology set up to accommodate the import of green hydrogen, that's at no fault of World Energy GH2. I'm sure they're well aware of the partnership moving towards contractual obligations. Also, interestingly, and we don't have provincial monies in play here, and we we're told there won't be in the future, even though the future is really hard to predict when we talk about whether or not this is going to work the, the way that people currently think it could and should, and the concept or the possibility for a company, like it happens all the time, provincially and right across the country, when business models come up shy, there's the possibility to come cap in hand to the province for additional financial support. And we've seen that in a variety of industries, right? You know, think back to Kruger and the $110 million that was afforded to them as a loan of which has now grown to $117 million. They haven't made a payment in years, but I'll get back to World Energy. One of the real tricks to make sure their business model is going to work is they need the federal government to finalize plans for a 40% subsidy for capital costs of building these hydrogen plants. That's huge money. You know, people will talk about the so-called overspending, the increase in the sovereign debt load in this country, which now is in excess of $1.2 trillion, real substantial issue that we can and should be talking about. But when we talk about capital investment not fleeing the country, when the Americans brought forward the Inflation Reduction Act, which saw billions, if not trillions of dollars, for things like transitional fuels and other incentives to curb or reduce emissions. Consequently, if this country didn't do anything, we would have seen a mass exodus of these types of companies that are talking about these innovative new products, green hydrogen and otherwise. So you may think it's a good or a bad thing, and then some of the money's put on the table for tax relief to build some of these electric vehicle battery plants in a couple of parts of the country, what would the options be? If we didn't have some sort of federal program in place, would it be a good thing or a bad thing to see what has long been a concern is the ability to track capital, attract capital investment in Canada, regardless of what we're talking about, either in traditional industries or these new growing industries, of which there's massive potential. So it's interesting that the business model really firmly relies on the fact that the government needs to finalize the details of a 40% subsidy for these types of plays. They're talking about a project here, and the ability to make a financial decision here, or final investment decision, firmly relies on all these moving parts. So they're talking about a capital cost overall of $12 billion, and until the market is secured and the market is prepared in Germany or wherever in Europe, or wherever in the northeastern, northeastern United States, or wherever in central Canada, until those markets are secured, no lenders are putting billions of dollars on the table, even though Mr. Risley is, of course, been very successful and himself a billionaire, 
And again, World Energy GH2 is a very new entity, you know, created for this exact proposal on the uh, Port of Port Peninsula. World Energy itself is an absolutely massive company. There was a story that we read maybe last week or the week before, I can't remember, regarding their operations in California making and providing sustainable aviation fuel. They're talking about quintupling their investment and their output at that particular facility in California, which is multiple billions of dollars as well. So this is a big company with big aspirations in these new transitional cleaner uh, low emission fuel sources. So pretty interesting stuff. All right, let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. In the world of lowering emissions and what have you, there's a very helpful calculator out there because we've all heard the rally cry, especially from Mr. Poliev as he campaigns across the country as the leader of the uh, Conservative Party of Canada. And it's the political sloganeering of Axe the Tax. It's not the first time that that slogan's been used, whether in Canada and or the United States. It's happened quite frequently. It was a big featured uh, campaign slogan when then Prime Minister Brian Mulroney was introducing the GST. And there was the Axe the Tax campaign that took place there. And certainly it's happening in the United States. When we talk about the impact of carbon tax, and it's very real, of course it is, right? So we can indeed talk about that this morning. We understand the carve-out for home heating fuels and the carbon tax applied that won't be applied to it in everywhere in the country is eligible for. But, of course, the prevalence of home heating fuels to heat our home in Atlanta, Canada, much different than the rest of the country. You know, you hear a lot of this coming from Alberta, and their primary source of home heating fuel, of course, is natural gas, which has not seen an exemption. But when we talk about whether or not the liberals, who have kind of set their own, their own destiny here with this particular carve-out, it may indeed be the end of the carbon tax in this country. I don't know. If the conservatives are elected, and they're way ahead in the polls, if they are elected, they've talked about it in no uncertain terms. That tax is going away. Then you look at what the impact is. We only talk about the tax. We don't talk about the associated rebates, of which there's quarterly checks coming to Canadians who are on the federal scheme. There is a provincial standalone carbon tax structure in two provinces only, Quebec and British Columbia. In British Columbia, it's been in place for quite a long time. When we try to factor in the associated rebates, and I wonder whether or not this will be able to be crafted as an uh, understandable message by other parties, because the conservatives are clear, the tax is going away. They have their own considerations with the move towards curbing emissions regarding technology and carbon capture and carbon offsets and the rest. Not entirely sure how that works at this moment in time, but take the time to have a look at some of the news stories that are doing, having the conversation about the rebate. Whether or not we're going to see a negative impact on low to middle income households. Many of which, and these are not my numbers, these numbers come from the Parliamentary Budget Office and many evaluations of the carbon tax over the last couple of years. No data from this province yet because, of course, we just fell under the federal scheme in the very recent past. So when you see the lower and middle, how, middle income households may indeed be worse off if the carbon tax goes away. Is that something that people are using in their calculation of, you know, looking at one party or another, one leader or another? Because I think there's, that calculator might shine a pretty bright light for some of the households that are eligible for these rebates or what the rebate means regarding, uh, uh, pardon me, regarding how much they actually spend in carbon tax-related measures, of which there's 
many. And then the implication for farmers and carve-outs or exemptions for the agricultural sector, what that means to the price of food. So there's a lot there, but have a look for that calculator and bring your own family income into the equation and see whether or not the tax going away actually is a negative or a positive for your bank statement. It's an interesting exercise that I think would be well worth your while. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, George. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, I'm calling about the uh, the conversation you've had several times about the recent program that seems to be a uh, success. The income assistance to work sort of thing? Right, yeah, they call the Employment Stabilization Program. It was once a pilot, not going to be expanded province-wide. Okay. Well, I, I was curious about in what exactly do we know about the outcome of that program and what we're calling a success. It concerns me that we don't know anything else other than they're off of income assistance. Well, that means that they're seems- working. <clears throat> that means they're working, yes. But is that success, or do we just add? Are we just adding more people to the working poor, like extreme working poor? Do we know anything about those four, 40 people that are successful? Do we know where they live? Well, are they just the youth that are now working at home with their parents, sort of thing? What do we know about these people? Do we know enough to be saying that this is a success? Well, I mean, I'm the one who's used that word. Whether or not people think that's appropriate to fair ball, we can have this conversation. We do know that they all live in and around the metro region because the pilot program only happened here. And since it has been deemed some level of success that they're expanding a province-wide. So that much we know where they live. Who they are, what age they are, what type of jobs they have, I don't know. And I don't know if we're ever going to get a clear breakdown of every single one of those 40 people who are no longer requiring income support. But just from where I sit... If there's programs in place that see people who are once reliant fully on the social safety net, income assistance, then if they're not any longer and they're actually in the workforce, then there are opportunities for whether or not they currently are classified as working poor and there are opportunities to advance and earn more money and move up the ladder of hierarchy in their company. That's better than being fully reliant on social assistance, in my personal opinion. That's why I think it's a a success. Okay. Yeah. Well... It seems to me that we don't have enough information to be calling anything a success. That's all I'm calling for. What type of information beyond where they live would you like to see before you would give it a label of one thing or another? Well, let's just talk about the minimum wage, for instance. That can't be a success. There is nothing successful about our minimum wage system. That's my point, one of my points, and I'm not sure if I have other ones. Other than it seems to be the lowest hanging fruit to say, oh, that's a success. Then let's put it province wide. And I think it may be just throwing good money after bad. And I'm pretty sure that there are people sitting all over in government office that are saying, good, yeah, you're right, baby, this is a success. I don't see it as such. Well, let's talk about the money. 
So when we compare what social assistance means, because that's only just one pot of money that people who are low income earners can uh, take advantage of. So the money we're talking about inside this pilot program is pretty small potatoes. You know, a job start yeah. lock. Okay, just let me finish the math, and then you, know, you can react. Sure. So uh, job start allowance of 250 bucks, and then a government payment after six months of 250 bucks, 500 after a year, 1,000 after two years. So we're talking about, let's see here, 250, 250, $2,000 $2, after two years. That's it. That's the entirety yeah, of the supplement. So that's pretty small potatoes when we talk about what social assistance and other programs would look like over the course of two years. Yeah, it's really small potatoes, and it makes me question whether or not anyone is even considering it. Considering what in particular? Sorry, George? That, that's a motivator. I don't understand how anyone can consider that a motivator. I'm pretty sure that the people that we're talking about, I don't know no more than you do. But it seems to me that, uh, I don't know, it seems a little early. It seems we don't know enough information to call anything a success. Well, I wonder how many people would have got their own job without this program. Well, that's Im impossible we don't to know answer. That, do we? Well, yeah. because that that question just simply cannot be answered. Is why we no. won't, we don't know that answer. Yeah, I guess I uh, I guess I said everything that I wanted to say. Uh, I, I, I've I've heard you say that three or four times, and I'm wondering. Jesus, I'd like to know more information about this. I think it might take time to actually have all the information you're looking for. And I understand I your concern, so. and I understand your question. The fact of the matter is, this program is not even 12 months old. So until there's a bit of data to rely on, and you know, even to extend your questions, which I think are absolutely fair, is it'd be nice to know a year from now whether or not the 40 of the 170 are still working. It'd be nice to know an update from the department whether or not that number of 40 has grown or shrunk since it was first reported. So I understand exactly where you're coming from, George. And maybe just where I sit, when we talk about the number of people on social assistance in the province, which is around 22,000, I would think it's in their best interest and in my best interest and your best interest if as many people as possible get into the workforce. There's a lot of upside to working versus relying on the government. So maybe I'm exaggerating success. But if it seems to be, if it worked for 40, and when we expand it province-wide, if all of a sudden that number becomes 80, and a year from now those 40 are still working, and maybe not all working for minimum wage, whatever we can do to get people trained up and back into the workforce, I just think is an important exercise. Regardless of what label people want to put on it, I think we got to do what we got to do to try to help on that front. Well, yes. I think you're right. And fair enough, good questions. And maybe we'll try to dig a little deeper, see if we can get more uh, information from the department. Of course, the minister responsible at this moment in time is Paul Pike. He's the social development minister. We'll see if they can give us a bit more information to fill in some of the gaps that you'd like to see filled. All right. Since you mentioned Mr. Pike, would you like to ask him another question on RBF? Happy to do it. How is he not concerned about the labor on the recent, uh, uh, recent announcements? He says he has no concern about labor. The shovel will be in the ground next week or whatever the case may be. When will it be finished? Well, he had no answer. He just knows the shovels will be in the ground next week. Maybe six months from now, there'll be more shovels in the ground. We're talking about the housing announcements? The housing announcements. Okay. And now he said that he, weren't, he wasn't concerned at all about the labor that's required. And I don't know how anyone can be so obtuse. Fair. That's a terrible thing to say. 
Well, no, fair enough. Uh, so when we talk about skilled labor in this province, in this country, it's absolutely concerned. Don't take it from me. Take it from the Home Builders Association. Their concerns yeah. are, are varied. You know, whether it be the time it takes to get the permits to build, but most importantly, it's access to skilled trades. I mean, just ask anyone who's doing even minor renovations around the home. It's mm-hmm. hard to get anyone to do it because they're, you know, they're looking for the big job, not interested in the small job. And when we talk about the need to build 10,000 homes a year for the next six years, this year we home starts about uh, 900. Big part of that is absolutely cost of materials, cost of labor, and access to labor. You're 100% right. And the minister should be, uh, should be worried about it. Yep. All right. Have a good day, uh, Pat. You too, George. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. You know... So there's a, many callers provoked some of the conversations about, you know, what we need to do to ensure that people are either educated enough to actually be working in a meaningful, gainful job, whether it be government programs that can indeed encourage people to move from reliance on the government to self-reliance. So I understand George's concern. And the only reason I deem something like that program a success is because if we started in January with 170 people that enrolled, you know, to have access to the job start allowance, to get some assistance in training and to try to link them up with a potential employer. If inside, when with, I can't remember when the story was first posted, but I think it's somewhere in the middle of September when that story broke or was first published that I read. So in the course of those months, 40 of 170 moved into the workforce no longer were eligible and or required social assistance. George's question about how much they're making, fair enough. You know, the whole pledge to try to get people at the minimum wage up to $15, which we're moving towards. But of course, that, you know, uh, $15 uh, plea started years ago. And years ago, $15 may indeed been close to a living wage in this province, but today, nowhere near it. If you listen to certain organizations, of course, all the think tanks have their own leanings. But the Center for Policy Alternatives, when they talked about living wage in this city, particularly in the province, they were talking about much closer to $19, not $15. So now there has been consensus in the House of Assembly. All 40 members voted uh, unanimously to strike a committee to look at things like basic income. Now, there's a difference between a guaranteed income and a basic income. It's all about eligibility and different parameters that don't keep people in the so-called lazy lane and to try to encourage people to advance their skills, get in the workforce, further training and the rest. But George is not wrong. I mean, just do the math. If you're working at, for $15 today, working full-time, and even if you look at the average cost of rent in the city, for, for instance, a two-bedroom apartment, which is about $1,950, so say the most recent numbers, coming from the Canada uh, Mortgage Mortgage Corporation. So minimum wage is not cutting it. You add into your rent and whether or not you're able to afford a vehicle, add in your insurance and some of the very basics of life, then that minimum wage... That does not make ends meet. But again, a minimum wage is basically, in my own personal opinion, an entry-level wage. It was never intended to be a living wage, and there's a difference. If you are a single mother of two children making minimum wage, that's vastly different life circumstance than someone who's 18 years of age living at home making minimum wage. So the minimum wage conversation gets all swept up into one bundle, very much like how we talk about affordable housing. It's not all just the same thing for every single person. So those terms 
targets are floating and moving, to say the very least. Uh, I don't can't remember what I heard Brian Medor say in the VOCM News regarding this offshore wind announcement. Maybe I spent too much time thinking about these types of issues, but I'm really interested to hear what they come up with because the last time we spoke with Andrew Parsons on this program, asked about the progress in the negotiations regarding uh, a royalty regime and, pardon me, a regulatory structure, and we were told they're getting close, and obviously they've reached the end because they're going to make an announcement today. Then I think it's going to be fascinating to see just how quickly we hear about applications for exactly that, wind farms off our shores. And hopefully Katie Power from the FFAW, who has attended either virtually or in-person consultations, uh, a lot of them happen on the uh, Bjorn Peninsula apparently, and on the south coast regarding some of these offshore proposals, it'd be great if she could fill in some of what she heard, because basically it just sounded like a very base overview of contrast onshore versus offshore, and introducing members of the committee. No talk about any proposals or how big it's going to be or any environmental impacts in, on the fishery or otherwise, so we, we take that on, or anything that you want to talk about right after the newscast. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626 and your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad. I mean, it's getting cold, um, but it's a nice morning, isn't it? Lovely. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, chat with you guys about Kent City and the ongoing housing crisis. Um, and specifically, I guess, today about the task force itself. Okay. Um, so when was the task force press conference? That was, what, Thursday or Friday? Yep. Um, everything, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a volunteer down there, and I'm an advocate I've been at, I've been advocating for housing issues for a long time, and, and that sort of developed through issues that were not perfect in my neighborhood here on Livingstone. Um, so, and I've gotten quite involved with Kent City as a volunteer. Um, the task force, so here, I just want to share my observations this morning. Um, the task force so far has reopened the bathrooms, at Bannerman Park so that they are 24-7, which is what we had been asking them to the, the city to do for about a month prior to that. So Big Bouquet goes out to the city for securing that. Um, also, John Abbott uh, was able under his, um, he's the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, he was able to provide a dump truck through a private operator the other day that came down and picked up a bunch of garbage, which was incredibly helpful. Um, the folks there at Tent City, the residents, did a huge cleanup on the weekend. And so that was, it was really good for John to be able to do that and to get that garbage out of there. Um, but still, I mean, we're, we're kind of waiting. Like, it, the, no one has... No one has gotten in touch with the organizers at Tent City. No one has invited the residents. No one has been invited to this task force. So, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, without a timeline, we don't know that there. We don't know what the process is. There are no goals established for this task force. Um, I, I guess, like, does anybody know what's going on, Patty? 
You know, things like the task force, I think it's fair criticism to say that this could and should have been established quite a long time ago. <laughs> but when you don't have, you know, I don't know if the right phrase is terms of reference, but without any stated goals and or timelines, it's hard to even know exactly what they're talking about. Because if we're just talking about the ho the home expansion uh announcement from the province and or access to the housing accelerator fund that's all fine and dandy but that does very little to nothing for the immediacy of the concern so i don't know what they're talking about to be honest yeah it's a it's just i mean and without any communication it's it's sort of impossible for us to know now i will say that there are some good things uh now these these were ongoing but i think the pressure has been put on a little bit to to make sure that everybody is sort of taken care of from a case management situation down there now it's not perfect because how do you fill out applications you know for housing or if you've lost your id how do you how do you get into a clinic when there's you know a huge wait list for that kind of thing it's hard to get id when you don't have id right so you need help with that so in terms of casework it, it, i mean there are there is some really good work being done down there on the ground by the harm reduction the eastern health harm reduction team by and homelessness and by Thrive. And, uh, you know, I've been, you know, I was down there yesterday with uh, and saw some of the work. I mean, I see it every day on, ongoing down there. But yesterday in particular, there was a lot of very key uh, things being done by these folks. But again, I mean, we're just not hearing from the rest of the, some of the task force members haven't even been down there. So I'm questioning how they can make decisions without involving any of the residents or the organizers uh and also never being on the ground to actually see what's going on yeah i mean i i don't know uh, do you have an update for us you know i know that we had a couple of calls from people who say they were willing to contribute their time and efforts and tools and elbow grease to try to build whatever is being proposed do you have an update on the status of that particular yeah hope? herb called in i talked to herb yesterday actually and uh, i wasn't I, I didn't realize that it was the herb that i've known for years and years and years um but no herb herb called in and he said you know i'm uh, he was ex-military and um, that he was willing to reach out to other folks like RCMP and various people that have, uh, you know, a lot of experience in responding to emergencies. So, like, if an emergency occurs, these are the folks that, you know, the, the Red Crosses, the, 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 the Canadian Armed Forces, these are the folks that can come in and really uh, ensure that there is a solid response that's professional, that's totally organized um so i spoke with herb yesterday and we talked about um we talked about different solutions i mean it, it could be as simple as uh you know now now there's a um there's a carport down there like i mean we we want these folks to just feel somewhat comfortable while they're waiting on an appropriate safe place to call home so i mean even just building bunk beds would be great but what herb's after right now and what he's what we talked about yesterday, he was calling, he was going to start calling around to departments to try to see if government can, uh, can find a building that they're, you know, that's not being used, that they own, that these folks, the engineers, um, and the, like I said, the ex military folks and can, can go in and actually have like a, a, a very professional response. They can, they can go into that building. They can, cut out what's not needed 
they can build in apartments or units. And we know that's happening elsewhere. We know that Halifax is looking at that kind of response. So I think that's a really, you know, that there's the update, Patty. Uh, I talked to Herb, and he's looking into that further. You know, it is, I don't know what the right word is, it's interesting or possibly galling to know that it's taking people like Herb to coordinate with you and Robin, whoever else, to try to address the short-term concerns here. And, and I've heard you respond to this in the past, but let's do it in the airwaves. So, yeah. you know, with the issues we know regarding some of the unsafe and unsanitary conditions in some of the emergency shelters out there, do you think that's the same case with the gathering place? Because at one point they were turning people away, but no longer. And they actually have vacancies. Do you think that that would be part of the short-term solution with the winter weather about to fly a little bit more extreme? I mean, snow on the ground. It's minus two when I got in my vehicle this morning. Do you not think that that might be a possibility as we try to figure out some of the short-term solutions, moving into more permanent solutions? And the, the answer that I can tell you from my experience of talking to folks is that it depends, right? Uh, and also, you know, as it gets colder, that some, sometimes people are like, well, I just need to, you know, I need something. But ultimately, I think, Patty, like what, what I saw, you know, what somebody brought up to me yesterday who's a resident there at Tent City is like, I, I want a place with my boyfriend. We take care of each other. Uh, we need a place together. So the gathering place is a separate sleeping area the you know it's men and women separated um so that wouldn't be suitable for them um people in general have experienced you know like like the cot style shelter emergency shelter and when people talk to me about this what i say is like i mean we saw the we saw the atips that came out of that whole shelter discussion I mean, for somebody to be jumping out of a second floor window because they don't want to any longer be in a shelter, like whether they're being abused or attacked or who knows. I mean, for that to be the reality, I think like uh, I think I think we need to really question if the gathering place or anywhere else is suitable. Um, So, yeah, just to I guess to sum up the gathering place may be a suitable place, but it's not where these folks want to go there. You know, there are folks, I think everyone knows the gathering place. Um, and there are folks that have been more specific about their needs. Generally, um, a safe, affordable place to call home that they can lock that, that's that they have their own space because often patty and shelters, um, people go in with their, you know, they go in with whatever they have that's important to them, like they're the things that they own, and those things get stolen. There's all kinds of different issues with em- the emergency shelter system. And as we've learned over the course of this whole dialogue over the past, you know, that's become really critical in the past month, two months, three months, four months. For me, it's been, a, a, you know, two and a half years of dealing with this kind of stuff. What we've learned is that um, there are no standards for these shelters. So I think if the standards were in place, then that might change things. Um, but we haven't, you know, we've, what we heard from Paul Pike was, you know, we're, we're going to look at inspecting these places, these private shelters and various other shelters in the, in the new year. Um, so, you know, that, 
in terms of a gathering place, I don't know. We haven't heard from, you know, we've never, we've never heard from anybody down there as well in terms of, uh, you know, like Paul, I haven't spoken to Paul Davis. I don't know if Paul Davis has been to the tent city, but uh, it'd be nice for him to drop by and address, you know, if, if he thinks that the gathering place has suitable accommodations that people would accept, it'd be nice for him to co- have a conversation with the residents in order to determine if that's, if that's the case or not. We'll keep on it, Mark, and I appreciate your time this morning and the efforts you're putting in. Thanks, Patty. It's it, it's a lot of work. I'm you know I'm doing this as a volunteer. I don't get anything out of this except hopefully at the end I get you know a neighborhood that I can feel comfortable in. Um, that's where I started, and that's what I'm hoping comes out of this. And there's everyone I'm sure would feel better if people are safe and in their own affordable place that they can call home. Can I, can I just uh, mention a couple things that we're looking for right now, Patty? Quickly, go ahead. Okay, so uh, at Tent City, it, it's really hard to store things uh, dry, you know, to keep things dry. So an 8x8 C-can, um, which, you know, it's just a storage locker, basically, would be really helpful if anybody out there listening could bring one past or if, if they want to get in touch with me, I can sort of coordinate that. Uh, also, we believe we've got a work trailer um, that has, we think it's pretty sure it's been donated and we're expecting it next week. So I've, I've sent that out to the city saying, you know, we need a couple lockers to store things. Just, you know, it's re, it's unreasonable to, uh, to let things, uh, you, you know, you need dry clothes. They got to, stay dry and a work trailer would be really useful in terms of being able to allow people to get the you know their meetings with social workers to use the phone and to have a warm environment to do that um so that's that's what i'm hoping happens and i think like the sooner we can kind of ensure that everybody stays comfortable and dry and it's given all of the social work and 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 the opportunities for meetings that they need, the sooner we can get people placed in suitable places. Appreciate the time, Mark. Thanks for this. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Ken Dix. He's a pharmacist and operated for some 32 years in central Newfoundland. He sounded the alarm back in 2015 regarding the dose splitting of two injectable uh, age-related macular de- degeneration drugs, notably Ilea and Lucentis. Ken, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Ken Dix. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay, sir. How about you? Good, good, good. <clears throat> I happened to catch uh, Imelda's comments. Uh, she's she's a brave lady, and she's no fool. And I'm interested to uh, follow up. I'm pleased you are. You know, I did my best to try to set the stage, give some context to her conversation regarding the eye infection she developed after taking some of these injectable drugs. I think she was on both Ilea and Lucentis. Let's go back to 2015, Ken. When you started yeah. Sound of the Alarms, what provoked it? Um, the, the absence of prescriptions being filled in the province for procedures that were being done in the province. It just didn't make any sense to me, and I, I was part of a healthcare, sorry, Health Canada task force that, that uh, came up with the regulations around um, compounding versus manufacturing. And in those discussions, uh, part of the significance of those discussions was to prohibit exactly what dose splitting is. 
because every compounding pharmacist has the ability to create medication from scratch. They also would have the ability to bill it through as authentic drug. Now, those things can't exist. You can't, you can't do both. Uh, you, it's completely inappropriate for and illegal for a pharmacist to create a commercial drug that already exists. The only justification for making uh, compounding a prescription is when you confer a therapeutic advantage to a patient. You don't confer a therapeutic advantage to a patient that, that, that where that product is not improved and currently on the market. And you certainly can't build that product as if it was the authentic drug. When we talk about the concept of dose splitting or even the ability of dose splitting, help us understand why there's more than one dose in a single vial of these injectable drugs. Well, I think in the earlier, first time we spoke, we went through the idea of overfill. Uh, in, because the volume is so low in, uh, or sorry, in, a, in an appropriate dose, you know, realize you're dealing with 0 0.05 mLs. That, that's equal to one drop. So you can't package one drop in a vial and rece receive one drop. Right. You just can't do it. So the different manufacturers use different volumes, but about the same. So they put in close to a quarter of a mil. So that allows you to retrieve your, your one drop and then excess material is stuck to the vial, you know, it's, you get your full drop, and yes, there's some residual. No different than a ketchup bottle. Good analogy. You, you and I'm, I knew the answer, but I wanted get, you. Right. Okay. You do not get all of your ketchup bottle. Nobody does. <laughs> so, but, but in the injectables, uh, it, th this residual is actually part of the packaging. It's, it, it, it allows you to retrieve the necessary dosage. And it happens in all injectables. And if, if we allowed for the retrieval of, uh, for example, if you took a vial of uh, hydromorph or morphine and allowed dose splitting of that, so if you got 10 mils and, and there's a 10% overfill, what happens to that one mil of morphine? Clearly, it's illegal to do anything with that. It's not counted for. You can't pull out the extra dose and sell it. But clearly, it's, it's illegal. You, you could take tablets that, um, it's, it's commonplace now for tablets of different strengths to uh, sell for the same uh, price. So, for example, in a compounding pharmacy, you could take the, take the highest strength, you know, cut it down, make four capsules out of it and sell all those four capsules at the price of of the higher one and make considerable profit. That's illegal. You can't do it, even though it's a capability. Just because something's a capability doesn't make it the right thing to do. The right thing to do is when the patient benefits from what you do, not when you benefit, when the patient benefits. That's the tipping point. That's the fulcrum of justifiable compounding. Otherwise, we have no control over drug distribution. 
once it goes into the hands of people who can do this sort of stuff. And, and manufacturers have every right to expect that the product that the patient receives is the product that left their factory. That's a fundamental. They made it so that the patient would receive it. They didn't make it so a wholesaler or a compounding pharmacist can get his hands on it and, and dose split it or cut it. And it's clearly covered by Section 8 in Canada's Food and Drugs clearly. Act. So when we talk about, you know, we'll get to the manufacturers in a second, but there was a pharmacy in Ontario identified, advanced care specialty. So is the case that the uh, doses were split there and then distributed, or did it happen here in the province when upon delivery? The who, the who knew what when? Well, the clearest and, uh, you know, the most thorough information we have is about what happened um, while advanced was operating and we have video uh, you know phys- photographs of what they were dispensing so we we know what they were dispensing they 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 have they they issued their business plan in response to an rfp where they clearly said what they were doing like there's no secret of what advanced was doing the missing thing which amelda's case you know uh, brings home is we never had the connectivity of advanced to a Newfoundland patient. What we knew that Newfoundland patients weren't acquiring their medication in Newfoundland because there was the absence of uh, prescription data. It wasn't there. It wasn't in the pharmacy record and it wasn't in the uh, Newfoundland network, the, the actual network. So it wasn't being dispensed in Newfoundland. So by default, we knew, well, it was being dispensed out of Newfoundland. But obviously, you can't go out to another province and ask, or easily, and get that information. But an individual patient who has an insurance has every right to ask the insurance company, oh, by the way, who did you pay for my injections? And that's how Advance got linked to her prescriptions. Now, the other thing that in Amelda's case, which uh, is not to be you know, missed, is she had no knowledge. Mm-hmm. Pa- patients are, you know, they're autonomous. Patients have autonomy over their prescriptions. They make the choice of their health care provider. They own their prescription. They, de- they get to just decide who handles their prescription once it's passed to them. That's not, that's not to be circumvented, or that privilege is not acceded to somebody. So the idea that a pharmacist can fill a prescription for a patient without any consent or contact is an egregious thing. When this issue came up, she contacted us and said, what did I get? And I said, well, I don't know, Amelda, what you got, but I can tell you how to, you know, the, the path to go to try and figure it out, which is what she did. And she had some resistance, and we, we had to help her with that. But eventually she did get her record. Not only did her record show that Advanced was uh, billing her third-party insurance for full for authentic Lucentis for the time that she was getting it. 
it showed which pharmacies picked up the distribution after the fact. When when you you had mentioned Advance closed down, and I suspect they closed down because. You know, they could feel the heat. Yeah, they closed mid-2021. So when the flags were right. raised in 2015, did the practice cease at that moment of time, or how long after did we figure out uh, things were changing? Well, you're, I don't believe they did because the pattern of distribution didn't. Okay. The pattern of distribution just made a wholesale change to different players. But the behavior, the distribution pattern, remained the same. Now, those pharmacies are free to say, we didn't dispense dose split, and people can say, well, I believe that or I don't believe it. But why are you behaving this way when you can go to your corner pharmacist and get that prescription? The, the, the difficulty those pharmacists are gonna have is, did you ever talk to the patient? Did you ever get approval to dispense, to act on behalf of this patient? And in the Melda's case, the answers were no. She had no idea of the source of her medication. Why? Excellent question. In general terms, like when we talk about Ilea and Lucentis, so the manufacturers are Bayer and Novartis, respectively. What does yeah. quality control usually look like? Because I, I don't know whether or not Bayer or Novartis knew because the selling of those two drugs adds up to hundreds of millions of dollars per year in this country. So generally, how does quality control look when I'm the manufacturer versus the distributor? Okay, so, so manufacturing is one thing. Right, that's that's a federally regulated good manufacturing process uh, regulations. Compounding is is in a is a pharmaceutical privilege. It's a it's part of the profession of pharmacy. So there are two different things. So do think different things apply in in good manufacturing processes. Inspections happen. You know, there, there's standards that that apply. So when that product comes off. The, the manufacturer's line, it's quality, there is quality control. What the manufacturer, the manufacturer's victimized here too, because they have the, the absolute right and expectation that the product that they make is being used and conforms with the instructions in the monograph that they design for that product. What, for example, in let's just say there was a lawsuit about a product that had been tampered with. Why would the manufacturer be liable for that? Somebody took that, intercepted that product, adulterated that product, and put it back into the distribution chain. Yeah, I don't think I was leaning towards holding the manufacturer responsible, more so ensuring that the manufacturer knows how the drugs end up in the hands of the patients, as opposed to knowing or not knowing that the, uh, the doses were being split, consequently contaminated, okay. consequently infections. That's what I meant okay. by their quality control okay. and their responsibility, not whether or not they but, should be held to account for what advanced. Yes, them. okay, so, so uh, there's a pharmacovigilance program manufacturers run to, to do that to the best of their ability. But they also expect that, you know, the players down the line behave properly, too. And in the case of ILEA, when uh, or in Bayer, when Bayer did get uh, uh, some information, which we provided, to say, 
hang on, we got a problem. Within 24 hours, Patty, they sent out a, a legal document to say, cease and desist. If you are doing this, do not do this. We will, we will investigate this. We will, we will sanction you. This is illegal. Within 24 hours. So I think the problem becomes, from a manufacturer's point of view, is when, it, when, when their product goes into um, a manufacturer, sorry, a wholesaler, I mean, they expect these products to be handled appropriately. That's their, that's their line of sight. They don't have as much line of sight after the manufacturer. So that, that's, that's uh, I don't think it's a, I don't necessarily think it's a gap in vigilance. I think it's just the inside that, that, uh, that part of the chain, you know, there's a high dose of opportunism that that's been at play. I don't think this happens in, in the vast majority of drugs because the profit motivation isn't there. ILEA, that is hard to conceptualize this, but one ounce of ILEA is over a million dollars. One ounce is a million dollars worth of drug. Amazing stuff. Uh, anything else you'd like to add to this conversation this morning, Ken? Well, I, I, just a couple of things that, uh, to, to piggyback on what Amelda said. <clears throat> um, she also spoke about the idea of um, the frequency of complications, right? So she, she had an endo- endophlemitis was her, her problem, which you correctly say was an infection and, and uh, you know, a, a, a catastrophic infection, and she almost lost her eye. Um, she mentioned about the incidence of, uh, of these complications. Well, inc- the incidence of com- complications, are that's a tabulation of legitimate drug. If you're not dealing with legitimate drug, those numbers mean nothing. And in Amelda's case, even though there is a reporting obligation to, uh, to report an adverse drug reaction, Health Canada had no knowledge of her, of her uh, complication. So she's just one patient. But if you have all these patients and they have complications unreported, What's the statistics worth? Little to nothing. Nothing. Ken, I appreciate the information you send along via email and your time this morning. Stay in touch. Okay. Take no care. No worries. Thank you, Patty. You're Take welcome, care. sir. Bye. Bye-bye. As Ken Dix, pharmacist in Central for some 32 years. That's a fascinating story. You know, talk about poor ethical behavior by the folks at Advanced Care Pharmacy in Ontario, willfully knowing that they were not only doing something that could put patients at risk, but it was a contravention of Canada's Food and Drug Act. No one yet held to account. It's interesting that, you know, we hear these types of stories, and Paul Lane was on the other day talking about what's been uncovered, whether it be by the Auditor General or otherwise, and whether or not there's ever anybody or any issue that people, people have been held to account. And on this one, apparently not. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Let's keep rolling. Go to line number one. Jordan, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Excellent, thank you. How about you? 
Oh, I'm excellent, excellent, Penny. I got a couple of uh, acknowledgments and congratulations to say this morning. But first, I'd just like to touch on uh, something that came across my attention on Facebook there this morning when I was confirming some school names. Um, I've seen a job ad posted in Central with a new global employment group, some some sort of name, and they were looking for an exclusively a male Filipino worker to work at a Tim Hortons. Uh, you know, if that was any other type of designation, you could sort of see how that would be. I didn't think it was good. Let's just put it at that. That, that's an interesting piece of information because I don't even know how that works because the temporary foreign workers are run through two different uh, groups. So there's a Refugee Protection Act and the Immigration Refugee Protection Regulations. And for a temporary foreign worker, companies, I mean, it's very clear. You're only supposed to be able to avail of a temporary foreign worker if there are not qualified Canadians available. So, And it doesn't work like some Tim Horton says, we want to hire a male Filipino. They actually have to formally apply to the government to be allowed to hire a temporary foreign worker, whether it be a male Filipino or otherwise. So that's a strange job ad. Yeah, I've seen a few. I've seen a few comments that the page had made on a on a few people that were looking for work uh, had scrolled through the job uh, wanting wanted ads, and I'd noticed it. So I clicked on the page. You know, new company. They have an address there in Gander, um, and and it just struck me as really strange. So I commented, reached out, and asked them to clarify if they thought that this was a racist hiring practice. And I never got a real answer. They said that, that, that the employer was looking for this specifically. So then I asked them if they supported that type of belief and behavior. But neither, neither here nor there, I guess, at this point. That's for someone else to make decision on, I guess. Because it, it speaks to what your previous conversations have been about accountability and the apparent rotting levels of government that doesn't want to act on things. Temporary foreign workers can indeed be extremely helpful to the workforce because there are some industries have a hard time finding people to actually take the jobs. But it's clearly stated, and I know this gets abused and it should not get abused because hiring locally for qualified Canadians or hiring locally qualified Newfoundlanders and Labradorians is absolutely addressed right at the top of that program. So no employer should be able to hire anybody on a subsidized rate if there's a qualified local looking for that same job. That's just not how that program is supposed to work. I agree, thousand percent. But uh, but but on to what I wanted to tell you about today, Patty, was some big acknowledgements and some big congratulations. I um, I had the privilege this weekend of attending the three A uh, girls senior girls uh, provincial volleyball. Um, Heritage Collegiate hosted it. Big shout out to the staff, students, volunteers, Newfoundland hospitality on full display, execution. The operation, smooth, excellent tournament. Um, the girls at um, Jens Haven Memorial in Labrador, excellent, excellent to see the passion and the skill level that those girls got and the support. Um, they had their uh, MHA show up, which I thought was a nice... Uh, it, show, it showed a good a good side of politicians, you know, to have that human element with their uh, with their constituents and family members uh, showing full support. I really had noticed that, and that was appreciated. And uh, congratulations to the uh, Bacaloo Collegiate Predators. Uh, they were the 3A champions this year. They went undefeated through the regionals and through the uh, and through the and through the uh, provincials and. I was one proud parent, i got to say. You did say volleyball, right? 
Uh, yes, sir. Okay. And I get uh, taken to task for this quite frequently. You know, most people consider the preeminent court sport being basketball, but I think it doesn't hold a candle to volleyball, to be honest. And maybe right. I'm biased because I have a volleyball player at home. But no one volleyball player can do it all for their team. You know, it takes an absolute team effort. You need a good pass, a good set, a good hit, or a good tip or whatever to get a point, as opposed to me grabbing a rebound and going the length of the court and dunking. And, and these girls, they share the – I mean, I've been to just about every tournament that I can get to, and there's a different MVP every tournament. Uh, they share the load. They, they work as a team. They've been six years now working towards this goal, and it was really good to watch it and get to see it. And actually, now, Patty, now you said that you're involved. I know that your son, Jack, has had a hand in some training seminars over the summer with some of these girls. So there we go. You've had, you've had a little piece of the uh, – action there and making this a possibility as well. Yeah, Jack worked for Volleyball Newfoundland over the summer, again this summer, and good on him. And he still plays. I actually went to watch him play in a tournament, even though he's 23 now, but I still love watching him play. So I went to watch a, a little tournament the boys were involved with a couple of weekends ago. It's great sport, great stuff. I appreciate the time awesome. this morning, Jordan. Thanks for this. Perfect. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take that break. I think we're back. Are we, David? Okay, break time. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello? Hello there. Uh, hi. Uh, I was, earlier, I was listening to the guy that called in, and he said to you about uh, Tim Hortons in Grand Falls hiring Filipinos. Yep. Okay, well, this is a fact. Uh, I can't offer much information. However, three of my friends who are Newfoundlanders from Grand Falls got laid off last week so they could hire more Filipinos. It should somebody never happen. Really, no, so somebody really needs to investigate Tim Hortons in Grand Falls. I just don't even understand how anybody thinks they should or could get away with these things. The process is clear. If there's a qualified Canadian that's currently employed, they can't be laid off to be replaced by a temporary foreign worker. The program is very explicit on how it's supposed to work. So if there is any outlet, including that particular restaurant in Central doing it, then if I was the person laid off, I'd be going directly to the federal government and to the Employment and Social Development Canada to tell them exactly what happened. Yeah, well, I hope they're listening because that's what happened in Tim Hortons at Grand Falls. Now, there may indeed be circumstances where, you know, there's a bunch of things involved in this conversation. If you can't find someone who's local and qualified and willing to take the job, that's one thing. That's why the Temporary Foreign Worker Program is there, not for how, what you describe. Then I guess there's a conversation to be had about whether or not people locally are willing to take a certain job for the rate of pay being offered, which is kind of a separate conversation, but it is part of this labor market story. But if they're your friends... They should absolutely go directly to Employment and Social Development Canada and flag this because this is not what the program is intended to do. Well, I certainly hope they do that because that is exactly what happened. They wanted your job and now they've lost. So I thank you for listening. I appreciate the call. Take thank care. You. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We've seen in various industries 
uh, companies that have availed of the TFW program. You know, let's just say in the most recent uh, snow crab harvest and processing. There's a bunch of plants, and I don't, I don't know if there was a single uh, snow crab processing plant in the province that did not have some complement to temporary foreign workers. If they can't find someone to hire, then, of course, you've got to keep the business afloat, and you can avail of a program like this. But if there are companies out there who are saying the quiet part out loud, and they're laying people off or firing people that, say, for instance, in a, a fast food joint in Central, if they say that you are being let go, because we are going to replace you with a temporary foreign worker that is absolutely in contravention not only of the spirit but of the actual black and white of the program it's absolutely ridiculous oh my god let's go line number five say good morning to paul walsh from the autism society of newfoundland and labrador good morning paul here on the air good morning sir how are you excellent today how about you great thank you very much you know we talked last time i think about some of the gaps for uh children on the spectrum in the k-12 system just describe where we are and where some of the gaps may be uh, well, it hasn't really moved a whole lot in terms of the needle right now patty uh, you know when it all comes down to it, it's resourcing in the classroom. Uh, a lot of the children in our community need um, student assistants. They need itinerant teachers, and you know those are rare, are, are scarce resources in the system. And uh, you know if there's a number of students involved, then they may not get one-on-one uh, attention. Uh, they may if, it, if it's necessary. So it's a, it's really a question of resourcing. I know we continue to work with the Department of Education and with the uh, school board to address specific situations, whether it be busing, whether it be, you know, the, um, classroom activities or whatnot, uh, to, to promote inclusion. But, you know, always, always challenges around, around resourcing, as I'm sure you hear many times. How difficult is it to address the itinerant teacher issue when we talk about children on the spectrum? Because there is a vast range in the spectrum itself. So would it, an itinerant teacher be able to deal with every child on the spectrum? Because it's one thing to be uh, profoundly nonverbal uh, versus someone who much more, much more, I don't know if the right word is, much more capable, you know, to learn in that environment. So how difficult it is to train up a teacher to deal with the entirety of the spectrum? Probably a better question for the department and for the uh, for the teacher for the teachers uh, association, but uh, you know certainly the itinerant teachers are very well trained, uh, and it, and it's true that you can have a wide variety of needs within a within a community. So you take for an in- example an individual which referred to as non-speaking, um, you know does the itinerant teacher or do itinerant teachers get training in ASL? Do they get training in? Um, uh, um, uh, AAC or alter, Augmentative Alternative Communication. I think I got that right, Patty. I always screw up that acronym. Uh, devices. So we use a, a piece of software called Proloquo uh, that enables someone to communicate through the use of an iPad, for example, which is great as long as somebody's on the other end because communication is about sending and receiving. So if someone's unfamiliar with those devices, then that doesn't necessarily work. But the itinerant teachers work very hard to... Uh, to uh, do everything they can to uh, to to work with the children with, with the children, and uh, I am confident that they're very well trained. But I think your specific question is better addressed to the department. Fair enough, and you're probably absolutely right. Uh, maybe not asking the right person. Just for the uh, interest, general interest of the listening public here this morning, talk about some programs you have that they might not be aware of. Because I know there's lots of art therapy, coastal health, and there's art classes and digital game creation and the like. Fill in some of those blanks because there's a lot more going on over there simply than advocacy. Absolutely. 
absolutely a lot more going on it's it's a very busy space here and right across the province um everything from recreational events uh to uh, family events this time of year and throughout the year to you know to you know i was listening to a, a staff meeting this morning we were talking about uh sensory friendly skating uh, in clarenville i know um, mary brown center is in, in now doing sensory friendly skating um other recreation uh, events and uh, community events art classes dance classes music classes all those kinds of things that serve two purposes. First of all, they provide uh, uh, activities for individuals, um, adults and and, uh, and children, but they also bring people together. And I think it's really important that the community comes together And because we learn from each other a lot that way. I know we learn from our community and, and everything we do is, is reflective of the voice of that community. So these events that happen right across the island portion of the province uh, in our four offices are, are very important and yeah we have many great supporters uh who who have uh who help us through grants and otherwise uh, deliver this programs what about pre-employment pre-employment three big programs that again uh have a province-wide reach or at least two of them do uh we have a, a program called transitions uh which is supported by our provincial government uh that um uh, provides a full year pre-employment in, in life skills training uh, to uh, a cohort of individuals. We have another program that's supported by the CINE Foundation called Employment Works, which is a job readiness program, including job sampling. And we have uh, a third program called, uh, which is supported by the Royal Bank of Canada and others, called Students Transitioning to Employment in Post-Secondary, or STEP, uh, which uh, provides tra- uh, help with getting ready, something we all need to learn, Patty, getting ready in terms of interviews and in terms of understanding the workforce and just being ready to make the choices of, do I want to go into the workforce and I have to leave high school or do I want to go on to study somewhere and what does that look like? It's always good to have you on the show, Paul. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, and uh, I, we really appreciate VOCM's support. I will just bring up really quickly, Patty, that uh, we do have some programs going on for Christmas in terms of outreach and fundraising. We do rely on a significant portion of our budget comes from the community. Our transitions group is selling beautiful centerpieces. All that's available on our socials, on our website. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you in the new year about our uh, our third annual Embracing Neurodiversity Conference coming up in May. Some really exciting developments there. I look forward to it. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you and your team. And to you too, my friend. Take care. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. Paul Walsh at the Autism Society, Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, Lynn's in the queue to talk about heat pumps. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Glenn, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and to everybody else here in the in the station. Same to you. Thank you. I'm calling you this morning from beautiful downtown Dildo. Right on. And you know me, I've called in before. I called in about my book that time a few years back there. I brought that book up, that boat up in the Arctic. And I called in, of course, about the kittles last year to get a little drive on. And I appreciate you guys there because it makes a difference when you can call and uh, get it out over the airways, eh? Absolutely. Happy to have you on. Yeah. And so this morning, anyway, like... <clears throat> Uh, I'm calling about the heat pumps uh, so that your viewers 
uh, might be aware of something that they're like me are probably not. Uh, about three years ago, I guess, uh, my wife and I wanted to get away from the oil. We had oil furnace, and we wanted to get away from the oil, which, <clears throat> you know, everybody trying to do the same for cost-wise, but knowing that for, for better, right? And so anyway, we decided to install uh, two uh, heat pumps in, in our house, uh, bungalow, and uh, put 27 inches of, inches of insulation in the ceiling at our own expense. There went for no grants or for anything. And then we, uh, of course, got the uh, right uh, guys to come along and see what we needed, and they suggested a 24 BTU, BTU for upstairs and 18 for downstairs would be more than sufficient to heat the house. And so we said, well, you know, because of what we could do, so we put a 24 upstairs and a 24 downstairs. And uh, so once we got to run, you don't even know it's there. I think is the best thing, best, the next best thing since sliced bread, as far as I'm concerned. It's beautiful, eh? You don't know it's going. You turn it on, you set the heat, and it's, and it's great. Little maintenance. Take the felt out every now and then and uh, just clean a little bit of the dust that gets on it and way to go again. And so uh, and we were we were great up until I think it was probably <clears throat> the latter part of last week when our insurance for our house is uh, coming up for renewal in January. And so our insurance company wanted to do an inspection or uh, like a a survey on our house as such. We've been with them for like 39 years, and that's fine, right? But so I was delighted when they asked me, uh, so what's your primary source of heat? And I was tickled pink to say, oh, we got two heat pumps in. And he said, uh, oh, no good to you. I said, what? No good to you, he said, not your primary source of heat. Oh, I said, well, we were led down the garden path and because we we were led to believe that it was and, and he said no it can't be your ma- main source of heat <clears throat> i don't know why uh, i don't know why but i, I want to tell you that anybody got uh, heat pumps put in or are putting them in you check with your insurance company and find if that's your uh, primary allowed be your primary source of heat i don't understand it because the heat is marvelous right through the heat house and there's no maintenance nothing but nevertheless uh, my wife and I got to uh, hook up our oil furnace again, maybe buy an oil cast to get back up to par with our insurance company. And it's going to cost us uh, a lot of money that we didn't dream that we would have to uh, have to do. It's an important piece of advice that you're offering this morning, Glenn. The confusion is that it's not the exact same set of circumstances across the entirety of the insurance industry. Some will uh, consider your central heat pump as a primary source of heat if it's ducted throughout the house, but others won't do it at all. They say you need a backup source, whether it be an oil furnace or electricity, but it's confusing. But the very best piece of advice that you and I are trying to offer here is when you're considering going through the oil to heat pump affordability grant, and there's a different pot of money in 22 versus the most recent federal government announcement, it does say that you have to haul the oil tank out of the house. So now all of a sudden, that backup source is not even available if you uh, if you take advantage of that money. Absolutely. So call the people who are selling and installing the heat pumps to ensure that you're walking through all, all the available programs and all the available money. And secondly, before you pull the trigger on any of this stuff, make sure your insurance company will cover it, if indeed it will be your primary source of heat. Those two things have to happen before you even go down that path. Absolutely. And we, we thought it was great, and, and so it is. I mean, like 
we don't we don't use nothing else. Well, we got a little wood stove in the basement, of course, but but for primary heat, it's going you know like all year round, eight twenty four seven. It's marvelous, and there's no reason in in Newfoundland the weather we got why it can't be a primary source of heat. I mean, I know lots of people. All, I could look out the window here and now and see heat pumps stuck on people's houses all over the place, right? You know, and. Uh, there's an awful lot of them being installed if they're no good, you know what I mean? They are good, and they work, and they're very efficient. Wonderful, yeah. I think the concern with some insurance companies is that a certain, certain temperature threshold, they might not be as efficient and or work, but that is extremely cold. We're talking about minus 40 Celsius. Yeah, not around here. No. That, exactly. No. The, no, they should. It can't be the same for... <clears throat> like with the, these heat pumps, it can't be the same uh, rules for for us here as it is somebody up in uh, in Nunavut somewhere. It, it's not the same place, not the same temperatures. You know, no way. You know? I think you're right. So call the company who sells and installs, and then call your insurance company before you go down any of these paths. It sounds extremely attractive and incentivizing to do it because the money's out there. Yeah. You can get a large portion of the money up front, even like even in this province with some of the transfer or transition programs, you get the bill take charge. So it's not even money out of pocket before you look for a rebate yeah. so do those exact things that Glenn suggests and I appreciate the time this morning Glenn but what I'd like to see someone do uh, Patty was to try to uh, convince somebody the government or, or the insurance co- or somebody to uh, allow those uh, you know uh, heat pumps to be your uh, you know your main source of heat that's what needs to happen right Agreed. Yeah. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Uh, again, there's so many different pots of money out there. I try to keep them all straight. There are some that there's money up front. There's some that you have to wait for a rebate, like the Canada Greener Homes Grant. That's a rebate program versus the provincial program that was recently recently announced because you can build directly to take charge NL. So, again, the companies that sell and install, they will walk you through it free of charge as to what programs you'll be eligible for some of them are tested about net family income and what have you. So those two things that Glenn suggests is absolutely the right path forward. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the PC member for Harbour, Maine. She's the opposition critic for justice and public safety. That's Helen Conway Ottenheimer. Good morning, Helen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patty. I'm uh, just calling now this morning uh, regarding um, the recent media reports, which um, were actually confirmed by um, access to information documents, and they further uh, reaffirm and verify the serious acute situation that exists in our penitentiary in the HMP. Uh, and that affects not only the inmates who are living there, but as well the uh, staff who have to work there. Absolutely. The, you know, before we get into the circumstances surrounding the 35-year-old Seamus Flynn's death, back in August there was also a death that we don't have any details about. To the best of your knowledge, are all of these investigations solely held and are taking place by the RNC? I have no information on any of that, uh, Patty. And uh, again, uh, you know, I would like to express my condolences uh, to the families and loved ones of both of those um, men who, who died uh, in the uh, penitentiary. As you note, uh, there was a death um, about four months ago. We have no information on that. As well, uh, the most recent death of, um, of the individual, Mr. Flynn, who passed away on Saturday. Uh, I understand that the chief medical examiner um, is looking into it. That's the extent of what I know. 
but what I have to say, which is very concerning, is that um, you know this the, these reports that uh, have come to light uh, show further evidence that um, you know the there are serious concerns down there that we've been you know in the opposition uh, raising them for months and years about the conditions. But what this says uh, to to us is that it's not being addressed and taken seriously because we have not heard from the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, Patty. And I think it's imperative that uh, the uh, the government, the, where's the leadership from this government, where's the Minister of Justice, they need to speak on this, he needs to speak out on this to uh, indicate that this is being taken, taken seriously and what is going on. Fair enough. So are you looking for details surrounding the death or whether it be related to conditions or rodents or mold or the fact that apparently there's widespread sickness in the penitentiary? If you're asking specific questions, what are they in a row? We Well, we don't know. Okay, so, you know, without... Um, you know, I know that I do understand and respect that, uh, you know, there is, um, you know, the medical examiner is looking into this. And I do respect the fact that, you know, they have to be given the opportunity to do their job and to, to find out what's going on. But what, what is concerning, Patty, is we don't know if this is related to the conditions, whether it be with respect to rodents, you know, the, the uh, unhealthy conditions down there. We don't know. Know if this is connected to staff shortages, uh, we we are simply left in the dark. We need to get have some assurances. We need the public has a right to know. Uh, in my opinion, um, you know what is the connection here? Is there a connection? Perhaps there isn't. Is there an influenza down at the penitentiary? We're hearing, um, you know, rumors and reports. I mean, I've had two phone calls this morning from parents of inmates who are down there, um, you know, who want to know what's going on, if, is there any action being taken. I mean, I'm sure you're probably getting the similar uh, calls from uh, loved ones of uh, inmates that are down there that, um, you know, want to know, is, is there any action going to be taken here? Because um, not only for the sake of the inmates as well, but we have correctional officers down there. I mean, I can understand why, um, you know, who would want to spend the next 20, 30 years working in that facility. Um, we, we only have to uh, look at some of the recent reports about the burnout and the mental stress and strain that working in that facility is causing upon the correctional staff who have to work there. So, um, you know, we need to have some leadership from the minister, at least come out and assure us that things are under control, that there's some action being taken here. Um, what's happening, Patty? That's just not good enough. No, and then, you you know, the government will say that there is timely access to medical care with a full suite of healthcare professionals as part of that team but then the inmates tell a vastly different tale they say you absolutely need to be taken to hospital before you get medical care inside the walls of the penitentiary so it can't be both and uh, you know i'm also hearing from not only um the inmates brought from staff, um, Patty, that are expressing concerns. I mean, when we look at just the some of the documents, for example, that uh, were obtained um, 
through access to information by uh, media last week, and uh, you had uh, leadership in the within the penitentiary who are basically uh, complaining. These are staff members that their concerns are not being addressed about certain uh, maintenance um, issues that are are not being dealt with down there. And then the other thing that you know is of of serious concern as well, and we have to be mindful of this, is the fact that you have. Um, you know the the numbers that are down there. The the numbers are increasing. From my information that I've been receiving, is that the um, you know it's at past uh, maximum capacity, and uh, there's double bunking going going on, which obviously results in further stress or strain, uh, not only within with respect to the inmates, but then you have the staff. If there's a staff shortage and if you don't have the um, adequate number of uh, staff to be, um, you know, supervising these ranges, I mean, that has a host, another serious host of conditions or problems that may result. So, you know, I mean, there's there's a vast number of, of problems down there. We're hearing from stakeholders, whether it be, you know, from um, in the John Howard Society, from turnings, from, um, you know, from lawyers. Um, it's it's become an issue that is affecting, you know, all areas in our in our society, and it has to be given the serious attention that it needs immediately. I appreciate the time and the questions and the concerns. We don't have a whole lot of detail. You talk about double bunking. A mother of an inmate sent me an email on Monday saying that her son is being triple bunked. Yes, and I've, I've, I've not had any calls on that. Uh, but I do know when you look at the access to information, one of the documents that was obtained by media, um, the um, I believe one of the leadership uh, officials down there was suggesting that they needed to start double and triple bunking um, to, and converting cells to do so because of the um, unprecedented numbers of those in custody. And I mean, to me, that's a that's a very uh, dangerous uh, course of action uh, when you know um, you're, you're just increasing the strain and the tensions that uh, not only the inmates but the uh, correctional staff, um, you know, have to face. So uh, we really need to hear from the Minister of Justice on this and to get reassurances that uh, there's, there's, this is being taken seriously because it appears that, um, you know, these, these problems are not getting the immediate attention and and they're not being taken seriously. And this is why we have a government, the Minister of Justice, it is his responsibility to, um, you know, to address these concerns. I appreciate the time, Helen. Thanks for the call. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Helen Conway Ottenheimer, the PC critic for Justice and Public Safety, and of course the member for Harbour, Maine. Very quickly, I, I know this happens quite frequently, the confusion between many splits and central heat pumps. A central heat pump, of course, distributes heat and cooling throughout the network of ducts in your home versus mini split, like if you have the head of your mini split in your main living area, whether it be the kitchen or otherwise, it just heats or cools that part of the home, so they're two different things. A friend of mine in the insurance business said that, generally speaking, a uh, backboard, pardon me, Baseboard electric heat is generally acceptable for backup for mini splits, but they are two different things. And of course, the proper advice is if and when you're interested in availing of some of these programs, 
go through the companies that sell and install to talk about the programs available that you might be eligible for and then call your insurance company all right let's take a break when we come back big news once again for genoa design international they've done a lot of incredible work in the world of 3d shipbuilding now they've secured what they call the company's biggest contract ever to be part of uh, building one of the new icebreakers that's going to patrol some 160 odd kilometers 162,000 kilometers of the arctic coastline the ceo of uh, genoa design international is gina picor she's in the queue don't go away Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the CEO of Genoa Design International. That's Gina Picor. Good morning, Gina. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm terrific. Yeah, no doubt you are. Congratulations on the most recent contract for the icebreaker to navigate the Arctic. But for folks who aren't familiar with the work that you do at Genoa D- Design International, it's been an incredible success when we talk about 3D shipbuilding, science vessels, and components of the Hebron platforms, uh, ferries in Washington State, the cable ferry off Vancouver, I think serves Denman Island possibly, has uh, tall boats and other vessels, a dredge barge in the Great Lakes. So amazing stuff you're doing. Give us a bit of a historical background of the company. Yeah, so the company is uh, its over 25 years old, and we started really as a true organic enterprise, an entrepreneurial need. We, we A job was needed, and so we formed the company. There was no shipbuilding going on in Canada at the time. And so we started exporting um, design services to south of the border and working with a lot of mom-and-pop shipyards around the Mississippi and providing them with the working drawings that are needed to actually build. So much like if you're going to build a house, you take the design and you extract the blueprints for that. And and so that's the kind of work. That's where we started. And over the past 25 years, and then significantly about 10 years ago, Canada decided to renew its fleet. And so that gave Genoa an opportunity to really grow under the domestic shipbuilding program. And over the past 10 years, we've gone from about 20, 25 employees and scaled up to over 200. Our peak has been 300, and we're going to get back to that again. And the work itself has migrated from um, working drawings and, and doing that kind of, uh, it's called lofting detail, to into the 3D universe. And now the wor- we describe our work as building the digital ship. So a physical sh- ship is built, and there's an exact div- digital match of that vessel and and that's our job so we are in the shipbuilding business it's just that the space for us is digital we we produce a lot of data and that data is then used to to construct and it's care it carries on into the life of the vessel itself which comes first the chicken or the egg so what's the marriage between 3d modeling and a paper blueprint brought forward by a marine architect yeah, so there's not many paper blueprints anymore okay. in a modernizing industry, but the 3D model comes first. So you take a conceptual design, and then the work we do, so on this program that was announced yesterday, we're going to have a dedicated team of about 100 people year over year who are working on constructing that digital ship and then the use of that ship. So we can take drawings for construction, we can do training simulations, we can do renderings. There's a whole lot of potential inside of that model. You've done 3D modeling for some of the science vessels, for instance, but how does this uh, project compare when we talk about complexity? 
Um, side vessels are super complex because you're fitting, you're cramming a whole lot of equipment, specialized equipment into a very small space. And so, you know, detailing that can be quite challenging for our designers. So the icebreaker is a little bit different than that, but now we're dealing with other. So there's a big science requirement on the polar icebreaker as well. And as you can imagine, it's going to do a lot of research in the far north. You're dealing with a thickness of steel. It's a 60 millimeters uh, thick steel that's going to be used to build that vessel so it's heavy um you know there's a lot of considerations in terms of the functional requirement of that vessel itself it has to cut through deep old ice and it has to get to the very far north and that's not a capability that we even have in the country right now so this is uh there's a lot of pressure on on fulfilling the requirement of this vessel fulfilling the schedule getting it out on time because the need is pretty is uh, pretty strong to, to get a replacement boat. Yeah, no, there's lots of talk about Arctic sovereignty, so there's going to be more vessels built for, purpose-built for Arctic patrol, science and otherwise, I would think. Mm-hmm. So you're Absolutely. talking about revenue, some $80 million for the company. What's the price tag on the icebreaker over, overall? Yeah, so that, that ship will exceed a billion dollars, and, you know, as the design specifications are ironed out, we'll see where that lands. But it is, um, so if I, I compare it to the current heavy polar icebreaker that we have, the Louis Saint Laurent, many of your listeners would would know this vessel in harbor. It's in harbor right now, and it's, it's uh, 55 years old, and it's still going strong, but, you know, that's the lifespan of a vessel like that. They're workhorses, and and so this vessel will be a major investment for Canada um, and with a really a, a new mandate. When you look at the geopolitical tensions around the world and the opening of the Arctic, this vessel becomes vitally important to sovereignty, to support of our allies, to coastline protection, to northern communities and so on. So it is definitely a very major asset for, for Canada. Talk about the relationship you have with some BC-based shipyards because C-SPAN is going to build this boat but you've worked whether it be in, in Oregon and with Vancouver shipyards for different projects. Is that just by happenstance or is there formal relationships? Yeah, so with C-SPAN, there's most certainly a formal relationship. We have been working with C-SPAN since the launch of the National Shipbuilding Strategy by the Government of Canada over 10 years ago, and we've been a consistent partner. And I would say one of one of a handful of consistent partners on that program, and we've worked together to kind of mature. The shipyard matured in its processes in Canada, and we matured as a, as a supplier. So that relationship has been very, very strong and recognized by the Government of Canada. We've done work as you mentioned, with, with other shipyards uh, ranging in size up and down the east and, and west coast uh, seaboards. And um, we've done some work overseas as well, but certainly C-SPAN is our major partner right now. I should also mention that we're supporting, um, we're working on the icebreaker, a heavy polar icebreaker for the U.S. So two icebreakers being built in North America right now. One's going to serve the South Pole, one is going to serve the North Pole, and Genoa is in the midst of both of them. How competitive is this space? Um, so it's competitive for sure, um, but Canada has very wisely launched a program that focuses on getting ships built in Canada and building the domestic supply chain. So we have been a recipient of those benefits. It's been we've been given, um, I guess, a, a, a leg up on accessing this work and developing the company. So, you know, I think that's a really important thing that Canada has done. And actually, we're the envy of a lot of nations. Uh, the UK, for example, and Australia, they both. Look 
look to the model, the Canadian model, and celebrate that model, and they're trying to emulate something themselves. So competitive, yes, Patty, our price and our quality has to be top-notch. Uh, we have to prove that every step of the way. Nothing is a given, but we are under the umbrella agreement, and that gives us some certain advantages. Yeah, we've made some, I guess, positive movement towards you know monetizing research and development. Long Canadians have been great at research, great at development, not so great at monetizing. So that's an important step forward, economically speaking. Uh, final thoughts before we say goodbye, Gina. Gina? Um, you know, I, this is uh, this was a great announcement yesterday for for the province. Um, when you look at the position that the, our geography, where we are in the North Atlantic, this ship is going to be vitally important to to Newfoundland and Labrador. But opportunities like this, you know, we talk a lot about tech industries, we talk a lot about uh, manufacturing, mining, and so on, and those are all really important. But this space, oceans, um, uh, marine, the marine environment, def- the defense environment, that's a whole segment of opportunity that. I was really glad to have our premier there for the announcement yesterday because he recognizes this space and how much can happen. And I'll just say, you know, there's a lot of recruitment that's going to happen out of this. So uh, I'd encourage, I guess, you know, anybody who's in this space to, to look to Genoa and see what might be out there. And we're certainly excited to, to, to get to work on it. There's no reason this province shouldn't be the hub of the gateway to the north or whatever associated centers of excellence, corporate and otherwise. Great to have you on the show, Gene, and congratulations. All right. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Gina Pecor, CEO at Genoa Design International. Great stuff there. Let's take a break. Stan, you're next in the queue to talk about temporary foreign workers. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Stan, you're on the air. Hi, Petty. I'm calling in about that uh, situation in Grand Falls with Tim Hortons and the workers there. Okay. Uh, I don't know if it's a true uh, story of... Uh, we're subsidizing foreign workers' salaries. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I knew that answer before I asked the question. Because I knew uh, a few years ago, the same situation here where I'm living in Mount Pearl. Someone on the family side looking for a job down one of the takeouts on Commonwealth Avenue, signing the window, looking for workers, could never get a call. Resume in, couldn't get a call. Because we're, uh, we're paying a full salary. If I'm a businessman, I'm paying a full salary to our own people. Get a foreigner come in, I'm probably paying 40%. And the government's paying, the government's not government, it's us. The taxpayers' dollars are paying 60 probably. And all this influx of people coming in is driving the price of housing up and apartments up. And you know that as well as I do, because of supply and demand. But the foreign workers, if that's what's happening out there, if I was out there, I'd be out with a placard out in front of that place to buy, cut it right now. There's, I mean, the it's true, and it's just of the lame people off just to get the foreigners on because I don't have to pay the full salary. It's time, it's time for someone to, to wake up around here. And, and Patty, talk about prejudice. If I didn't uh, have any word or any feeling in my body about uh, prejudice towards a foreign worker or anybody coming from our country, this is going to start breeding it. When we see this, lay our own people off and get those people on because we're so nice here in Newfoundland and Canada. we got to look after foreigners first. Well, I mean, regardless of what people think about newcomers or what silo they come in on as refugees or skilled tradespeople or tech innovators or doctors or nurses, the fact of the matter is that temporary foreign worker program is not supposed to be used the ways that some employers are using it. It says very, very clearly, if you open it up and you go to Employment and Social Development Canada, the very first paragraph says this, the temporary foreign worker program allows Canadian employers to hire foreign workers to fill temporary jobs when qualified Canadians are not available. That's the very first paragraph in the, the, the block covering the program. 
Yeah, Paddy, I know that if we can't get workers, we we got to get them from another country. I know that. But those three people got laid off. No, I'm agreeing with you. So, I mean, there's there's something got to be done. If we're using our tax dollars to lay off our own people, to hire around foreigners, and then you wonder why, not you, but people are wondering why there's prejudice against other people. I mean, they're, they're breeding it that way. By, you know, getting rid of our own workers and, and let them walk the streets when the unemployment runs out, they'll be on welfare. And well, the air crowd are going to be living in housing that we should have ourselves. There was much and much talk a few years ago about housing, even though we're short of housing and that. But now the foreign workers coming in, oh, we've got to build out of houses. Who do you think is going to be into them, Petty? And they're, Not they're, us. they're temporary Not foreign us. workers. Uh, Stan, with uh, all due respect, I think that issue regarding people will be mad at the newcomers is sort of misguided, in my opinion. They're just workers. It's the people employing them that are doing what they're doing. So if they're laying yeah, off the true. locals to hire the temporary foreign workers, that doesn't mean, in my personal opinion we should be grudge a filipino because they're I'm not, not doing anything that. they're just I'm taking a job i know who's i know who's causing the problem the, the, the owner of the business is causing the problem but we don't look at him as the problem we look at the foreign workers taking our jobs it's not not them i know but uh, it's, the, it's the owner of, of that business and then something should be done about it i mean why should our tax dollars go towards helping other people to go to work and our own people got to go sit on, uh, on sidelines i don't know exactly what the subsidy is coming from government go ahead petty i'm not sure exactly how much money comes from any level of government regarding subsidizing the wage i'll try to figure out the exact numbers i know it's based on median income and there's a moving target from province to province but i'll try to get that number nailed down so i can speak to it one time. Yeah, I don't know yeah, if that's... The owner of that business probably paying 40 and our tax dollars paying 60. I don't, I don't know. know that's right. I don't know, but I'll but find anyway, out. I'd like you to find out exactly, because I tried to get that from the NDP office a couple of years ago. I never got no reply back from them, right? Are we subsidized and, and how much? It'd be nice to know, Patty, and put it out there. I'll see if I can find that number as soon as I get a chance. Thanks for your time, Patty. Thanks, Have Dan. Good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Very quickly, this from a business owner. There is sometimes a year lag from the time you apply for an international staff person. At that time, you have to prove the need for that person. It would not get approved if that is not true. Now, fast forward a year, and they show up, and you're under a commitment to them, and what do you do? Personally, this person said, I would keep them all, but if you can't afford it, not defending Tim's by any issue, but there is a lag issue, and we're not sure what a subsidy might be. If there's a provincial contribution and or a federal contribution, I don't know, but I'll see what I can find out. Uh, let's take a break. When we get back, rounds are talk about hmp don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number three ron you're on the air yes good morning patty and thank you for taking my call no problem um i got a part is it helen attenheimer is the woman's name that helen conway attenheimer is the pc member for harbor maine and the just the critic for justice yep yes and i got part of her call not all of it and uh, unfortunately and that's what prompted me to call this morning is uh i have a friend that's in the penitentiary and i know it's getting a lot of air time over the news all the different you know things now but this example that i'm going to relay on here is uh is i've never heard this one yet is my friend that's in there his wife passed away and we tried to make arrangements for him to attend the wake like just however they do it and everything and he couldn't go because she was short-staffed. Uh, you know, I know they're short-staffed. There's nothing. And I'd like to say at this point that the staff down there, I've visited, I've dealt with the staff down there back and forth. The, the gentlemen and ladies that are down there, they're top-notch, doing the best they can. I can't say enough about them down there. They're, it's not their fault. It's what's going on here, right? 
uh, just a heap praises on them. Uh, their hands are tied, but not to be able to go to your wife's funeral, that takes it to a whole different level. And uh, the, the, the unfortunate part about it for the family as well is that while we were stood by the gravesite during the burial, my phone went off. And when I looked at the text, it was from a friend of mine who got some connections here. There's been a death at the penitentiary while we're stood by the gravesite. You know, that you can't make this stuff up. You know, is is just takes it to a whole different level. I don't know if uh, uh, the lady phoned in, the justice critic, if she spoke to this or not. I never heard her whole call. I wanted to hear it, but I just couldn't, I had what I was doing. But did she speak to any of this stuff when she called in? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, uh, the call was mostly about looking for details surrounding the, the most recent deaths. There's been two since August, but also talking about whether or not it's related to conditions or sickness or access to timely medical care, rodents, all the rest of it. So it was a pretty all-encompassing conversation yeah but she didn't speak to the case i'm talking about like the, the death of, no she didn't talk uh, about compassionate care i, I want to make it clear too compassion the, the inmate is not that wasn't his wife's funeral i was at like that's to make that quite clear here so uh this is a different inmate but it's just a coincidence of it all the way it all happened kind of thing for us at the gravesite it was just like took it to a whole different level kind of thing right and i do go visit uh do zoom calls and do um in-person visits up till when the visitation room was shut down for the mold. But a lot of people think that, it seems, the impression I get, a lot of people think that the visit stopped when the black mold showed up. But I hadn't been able to visit with this person since probably back in August or something, or whenever it was. It was way before the visitation room shut down because of the staff issues. And... You know, I've showed up down at the gate for a schedule appointment and walk up to the door and everything, and so well, there's no no visitation today. I said, oh, gee whiz, I never got a call, like, kind of thing. They said, well, sorry about that, but we're short-staffed. Like, we didn't, no one could man the, that system. And, you know, I've been waiting on Zoom calls a couple of times and waiting for the email to come in and everything. They set the call up and phone down to the pen and say, oh, I'm waiting for my call. Is anyone going to email me here and not get an answer and phone the switchboard? They can't really help too much. They try the best they can, but is yeah. But this thing with the, the, the inmate, like not being able to go to his wife's funeral, that's like, ooh. <laughs> I don't even understand. I don't really know how the process works to have a compassionate leave or whatever the proper term is. I would imagine it's considered on a case-to-case basis based on maybe why you're in the prison as opposed to a violent criminal versus someone who did something else. I don't know. The person had permission through the process. Yeah, no, I heard heard that part, yeah. Yeah, but just no staff. Amazing stuff. No staff. I went into the bank there, I don't know, say a few months ago, and there, lo and behold, was a correctional officer with a prisoner in full chains, leg irons, and the whole bit to do some banking. I was kind of confused as to the need for that sort of in-person banking, but anyway, it was just sort of, you know. Oh, you're saying, you know, see at the hospital and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, you do. And, and, and absolutely, there's things got to be done, you know, you got to go to the bank, do certain things, right? You know, that's, that's it. I suppose so. I appreciate the time, Ron. Anything else okay, this morning? thank you. Thanks for taking the call. Bye-bye. Anytime. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number four. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Thanks for taking me, Carl. No problem. I just wanted to clarify the heat pump thing, uh, the insurance and stuff. I think it's because uh, 
if you got a central heat pump, it's got an auxiliary heater in it. Yeah, it's got an electric a heater. That's right. Yes, which you don't want running because uh, it turns the old meter flat out. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I got another uh, little uh, six million dollar question for you concerning uh, the top secret document that Siobhan Goldie is holding on to. Are we talking about the Rothschild report? Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm wondering if she divulged any information about that yet. It's been like eight or nine months, I guess, since she spoke about it. Well, it's been distributed uh, distributed amongst the cabinet members, that's for sure. Right. Yeah, we yeah. can't get a look at it, apparently. The reasons uh, are... Top secret, yes. And I'm guessing that's, instead of $6 million, that's about $12 million now. That number, we can find that number, exactly what the government paid for that. That would be in the the uh, estimates. So that number, yeah. that won't fluctuate. That can't change. We'll find out. I mean, No, I'm just saying where it's uh, kept in the back of the filing cabinet for eight or nine months, right? That's, so I don't know who's working on it, but not many, obviously. I don't even know why that was required. You know, we paid McKinsey and Company a million dollars for a That's report. Right, yeah, we yeah. paid Rothschild, I think it was $5 million was the reported five number. Million, yeah. And then we had the Green report, which was basically paying per diems to Moya Green and a variety of other people that contributed to it. So the Green report released in full, unredacted. And, you know, I, my questions are, are we even, you know, we were told that this is a roadmap for a prosperous economic future here in the province. All the recommendations made, whether it be divesting our oil stake, uh, equity stake, you know, selling off bull arm, the NLC, and a variety of other matters. If it was the roadmap, are we actually doing any of it? And if there's anything that's happened in the recent past regarding, you know, different moves financially speaking, are they guided by McKinsey or Green or Rothschild or who? We don't really know. I don't even know the understand the reasons why we had to pay Rothschild to do a report that we just had done. Exactly. Yeah. It's ridiculous. You know, if there's things in there that are actually commercially sensitive, okay. I mean, there's a reason why some things are withheld from the public, whether it be human resources issues or actual commercial sensitivities. But in general, a reference to what Rothschild or anyone else thinks we should do with government assets, then how can that be so concerning that it has to be kept private? Like, I don't even understand the rationale as to why I can't have a look at that. Yeah, I agree with you. And then I think there's a bigger conversation simply to be had provincially and federally with the use of outside consultants. I mean, the way the federal government is spending on outside consultants is absolutely madness. No, they need consultants for everything. And we have so many uh, civil servants in, in the government now, right? Yeah, I mean, there might be opportunities when we don't necessarily have the the knowledge in-house, whether it be with uh, things like green hydrogen, for instance. We haven't done it here in the province, so it's probably likely that we don't have the expertise on that front. Maybe just maybe bring in a consultant on that front. But when we talk about consolidating <coughs> ambulances and what to do with the NLC and all the rest of it, do we really need to pay someone to make those types of decisions or recommendations? Sometimes I think they use consultants so that when they make a decision, they can blame it on the <laughs> consultant, right? <laughs> Right? Enough, yeah. yeah, fair enough. And I mean, I just think we overspend on consultants, period. We sure do. The yeah. numbers federally are absolutely jaw-dropping how much money they spend on outside consultants. And if I'm not mistaken, McKinsey & Co. are one of the main beneficiaries. Wow. And they've got a tattered track record, I'll call it. Yeah, right on. Just to be generous. Yes. Anything else this morning, sir? Oh, that's it, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call, Dave. You too, pal. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
All right, uh, so there you go. So one of the stories that I've personally thought is probably the biggest story in the country today. Oh, well, I guess that's hard to say because there's so many big items to be discussing. But we're going to try to follow up with people much more in the know about the structure of K-12 school system curriculum, how it's delivered, and how we square that circle and recognize the trend regarding the drop in math, science, and reading scores. You know, reading, of course, there's a lot of work can be done even inside your own home to improve your reading and comprehension. But the way we uh, deliver the math curriculum, there's obviously a problem. So, again, inside that report, they're not only looking at the impacts of the pandemic and the fits and starts and the closures and the openings and the hybrid system used in the K-12 world, but they're talking about a trend that's been in place since 2003. The numbers are clear when you do some global comparisons. So it's fine in the English-speaking world for Canada to be in the top 10, but, you know, resting on our laurels, saying, well, top 10, that's not bad. When you compare, for instance, high achievers in math to other countries in the world, and one of the uh, quotes were coming from comparing to, say, Asian countries. 12% of Canadian students, high math achievers, scoring at level 5 or 6. That's fewer than some of the top Asian countries and economies. In Singapore, 41% of students performed at the top level. Hong Kong, 27%. Japan and Korea, 23%. And why do I think that's important? Because there's going to be competitions for some of the biggest and the best jobs, or jobs period, with the global competitive marketplace that it is. You know, it's no longer a big bad world it's a very small bad world so that's why these things are critically important so we're going to try to get people on who understand that better than i do simply breaking down these numbers themselves you know getting down to the brass tacks about how we devise the math curriculum how we deliver it how we have standardized testing to ensure that we're on the right track because remember some of the way the traditional model of testing a student's knowledge and uh, comprehension of the curriculum has kind of gone by the wayside. Not to say there might not be more better modern ways to assess where a student is, but obviously some of the things in math and science aren't working. All right, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.